excited when I was hit up by Sean Youngblood, who is someone who not only that I admire, but has been a complete and total supporter of this hardcore from the very first one in 2006. He reached out. He said he wanted to debut a track exclusively on the podcast, and it struck nerve from Philly, which for me is all guys that have come up and grown up in our scene. It's great to see them represented on Youngblood. Sean, man, number 49, and this one's going to be a banger. For the kind of people looking for hardcore, more like Desperate Measures, and that early 2000 hardcore posse number sound, Struck Nerve delivers it to you completely. You heard the track, that's Common Ground. It's going to come off an LP called Rattle the Cage. Spoiler to the artwork, this shit is very classic. I'm actually amazed how good the artwork looks. You know, the guys in the bands have all been in other bands in the area. And, you know, Marty Williams has been in a ton of stuff, most known for singing for Agitator. But not only that, just somebody who's in the pit, every single band, every single show, just a complete and total supporter. Obviously, have to give a big shout out to the rest of the band. All these guys are people that are longtime supporters of Philadelphia Hardcore and PA Hardcore. Uh, big Jake Abbott, Joe from Time Bomb, that's my man, union worker, uh, Pat Voico. And, I mean, I don't really like to cap up Anthony, but, you know, Anthony's uh, around, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. He's in Jesus Peace. He's also in Payback. It's great to see Philadelphia Hardcore represented and Pennsylvania Hardcore represented on an amazing, truly hardcore record label like Youngblood. That track was awesome. It's called Common Ground. Once again, their LP, Rattle the Cage, will come out December 4th, vinyl and on digital on Youngblood. So, check it out. Support. Thank you. Our guest today is Anthony Moreshi, as I said earlier. He started out as a kid in New England as a BMXer, found hardcore, and brought us the amazing 10-yard fight. We get into detail on that, and then we go further into his life. I don't want to talk too much because this is a pretty long interview, even long by our standards, but I would just like to say that it is always good to talk to people in hardcore who have pursuits beyond just a band and have some creative vision and fight through adversity, and always find the way. And it's something that we keep going back and forth on on this podcast is being DIY and pursuing a goal and finding the way around the system to make things happen. And the story is inspirational. His docu-series is going to be absolutely incredible, and I hope he continues making them. So without further ado, let's roll. All right, I'm talking to Anthony Moreshi, also known as Wrench, who was the singer of Ten Yard Fight, but is more importantly today, as we talked to him, a director and someone who has given hardcore not only some amazing moments with Ten Yard Fight, and we're going to get into a lot of that, but it also has stepped out as a director on things like uh, chip on my, put the chip on my shoulder. Also, uh, 
a docu-series that we talked about in previous episodes, Don't Stand in Line. It came out today, so that's why we're having him here on the day it comes out. So thank you for coming on the show. Dude, thanks for having me. I always start off with something simple to kind of get your uh, get your brain working in the, uh, the earliest days possible. So growing up, what kind of music was in your house? What kind of music was in my house? Um, honestly, it was a lot of like uh, Frank Sinatra and kind of older like big band stuff my dad was into. Um, not 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 much like you know classic what you would think of as classic rock type stuff. Which a, a lot of my friends that was what was going on in their houses and their parents' cars. So you were a New Englander your whole life, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, other than three years where I lived in California. But. Oh yeah, that's right. Cause, uh, you had the impact band at yes. that time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so without that, where do you think, was it activities or just friendships that kind of drew you towards whether it was punk rock or heavy metal that first started getting you rolling towards the hardcore scene? Yeah. So it was definitely, I mean, I was always kind of like more of a just quiet kid, a loner. So I gravitated towards activities that you could do by yourself rather than team sports. I was never really all that good at those. So as long as I can remember, I was, you know, riding my bike and trying to do tricks and, and silly things on my bike. And then when I discovered it was an actual real thing, which I think was probably uh, like after I saw ET, they had this bike chase scene with the kids. They were all on BMX bikes. I really started getting into that. And it's, you know, obviously skateboarding as well. And with those two things, you know, punk rock kind of goes hand in hand. And, um, you know, I really like with, with hardcore, a lot of it, I didn't really, I didn't really take to it at first until I started to hear what the message was. And then I really kind of gelled with the the whole straight edge message. Um, so for me, it was kind of the message came first. And then I got, because at that point I was into, you know, like alternative type, like the cure and in excess and like, you know, new order type bands like that. Okay. Um, but then so, I heard, but that message just kind of turned me and it, and it was like, you know, I don't with, know. I was pro- I, go ahead. I was going to say with, with riding BMX and skateboarding. And that's a huge thing that a lot of people were first turned on a hardcore punk from. Were you someone that you would say was kind of just like an amateur hobbyist or was there some like BMX competition? Like what, what level were you uh, doing these, uh, these activities at that point? Before you um, found hardcore. Well, before I found hardcore, I mean, I yeah. was just a just a kid who could barely who could barely ride. I mean, I had aspirations, but was it street? Any... Was it like a street or park, or was it the BMX stuff like more woodsy and like off road? Well, things? for me, yeah, for me, it was more freestyle. So, like, I got into it in like, uh, geez, I mean, like when I first got into it, it was all like neon colors and like you know, guys wearing full like leathers, like real eighties freestyle, just flatland type tricks. And then there was guys, have you ever seen the movie rad? Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to get to. It looked just like that. That's what it looked like. Um, I didn't do much like jumping in the woods and we really didn't have any skate parks. The only rants we had was stuff uh, that we would build ourselves. So, you know, it was that kind of stuff. And then, you know, later eight, late eighties, early nineties, it turned more kind of like in a street thing. Uh, now was it local kids from school or just the kids skating and or the kids uh riding bikes that first uh you first started uh getting a glimpse of punk rock and whatever 
Uh, yeah, specifically the, the these uh, two guys that I rode a lot with. Uh, my one friend's name was uh, Mike D'Amico, and he did a he did a zine. It was like a hardcore zine, but it was also like had BMX and skateboarding in it. It kind of had everything. You know, it's kind of like what I've been doing today, but <laughs> it was just kind of a combination of everything. And uh, you know, he'd always. He'd always come by my house wearing like, you know, Youth Today shirt, Gorilla Biscuits shirts and all and like playing this and playing the music. And to me, it just sounded real abrasive. It's kind of funny. It sounded super abrasive to me and I didn't get it. Um, and then one day he I remember him and uh, my friend Tom showed up and they had a marker and they were Xing up. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they explained straight edge to me. I'm like, oh, I guess that's me. Like, that's how I always am, how I always felt anyways. Uh, a couple of years later, they were on to the next thing. But um, that's kind of what introduced it to me. And I remember vividly sitting in the back of his, he had this like old like Lincoln town car, just like the pimp, like a pimp car from, uh, it looked like the car in that Beastie Boys video, Paul, uh, I forget which one. Anyways, this is old Lincoln town car and just sitting in the back and uh, he had a mixtape on and then Slapshot came on. And it wasn't even a song. It was the that straight edge chant, the, that chant they did yeah, before yeah. straight edge in your face. And at that point, it was like I could actually make out what they were saying, like what what choke was saying. And it just it just clicked with the angry little you know teenager that I was, like hating everyone that was like, you know, I just I just felt like. I didn't connect with anyone and I was alone. And then when I heard that, it just was like, yeah, fuck yeah. Fuck everyone else. This is what I, how I feel, you know? And, um, you know, that could be taken too far, obviously, but <laughs> no, I think time, it connected with me. No, and that's awesome. I, that's awesome. And I, I just dug into everything else, you know, it was like, you know, minor threat nonstop for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, uh, I think start today was out at that point. Like, so this isn't even, you know, this is kind of like, I kind of missed the prime of, of a lot of those things. I remember like my friends would go to these, sh go talk about going to shows and I, all I wanted to do was ride my bike. So I missed out on a lot of like really good shows that, you know, they would tell me about like, by the time I got into it, youth today was gone. Gorilla biscuits was, you know, I remember I was going to go see them and then they broke up like a week before they were supposed to play. Um, so I, I, f I feel like I just sort of like missed that that golden era, you know, I was basically raised told that I missed every great band. <laughs> it was like a, almost like, well, you didn't see the pagan babies and you missed turning point. And you'll, and I was young enough that I know about some of the shows that weren't in Philadelphia, like city gardens, but I couldn't get a ride to a lot of them. Right. So like the shelter show that youth of the day played with sick of it all. Yeah. And they came back and said, yo, you're never going to guess what happened. Youth of the Day played. I was thought they were like fucking with me because I was going to tell like, you didn't see Youth of the Day. You never seen Gorilla. No, like you, they really played. And I was like, I felt so like a loser. Like, fuck <laughs> I missed well, all of hardcore. <laughs> how do you think I felt? Because I had offers and rides to go. And um, it's a time I was like, what are you guys crazy? It's a nice day out, you know, because it was a lot of matinees. It'd be like middle of the, you take the whole Sunday in the summer to go in, in inside a club. I just thought they were insane. It's like, I, I want to go ride my bike. This is all I want to do, you know? Like, but So what was the bug to get you into shows Had with that same kind of like, fuck, I missed it moment? I guess it was just, it was partially that. Like, I, I was like, when I heard 
when I connected with the music, I wanted to see it. And they kept telling me how like fun and how crazy it was. And, um, when I finally did go, I was just like, I was like, yeah, it's crazy, but I'm going to stand back here and watch this, you know? And, and like, really, like I never, I'll be honest. Like I never really got, like, I don't think I have the rhythm to, to mosh and dance. Like I, it was just nothing that that was part that something that I didn't, wasn't able to do. You know, I would try to like stage dive and I, I, you know, I jump off and end up on, you know, the whole crowd would like, you know, part and I just end up on the floor. So, so, uh, you know, I, I think I didn't come into my own with it until, um, probably until I tried to sing, you know, because I, that was the, the first time I really felt like I could actually be part of the whole thing. I always just sort of felt like I, I need to stand over here. And, and maybe that was just me being kind of like, um, self-conscious, you know? Well, what, what age were you when you were first, like hitting that I'm at shows, but I don't feel comfortable in a mosh. How old were you at the time? Uh, I mean, I was probably like a freshman, sophomore in high school. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. a hard time. That's a hard time just to socialize. You know, that's a hard time. Um, I had this same aspect when I was a younger, I, I, I saw my first hardcore show before I went into high school, but being smaller and younger, it was hard, but I kind of was like, it's kind of like live or die. We're either going to do this and get kicked or I'll never, I, 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 I just didn't want to not feel what everybody felt. Cause it was like the fear factor was really hard at first. And I know, yeah. I imagine, I imagine Boston was probably pretty rough. Well, that's what I was just going to say. It was, it was real weird because um, the shows that I would go to were either kind of like real local shows, like up the street from my house. There was this place called the red barn. Um, which is actually where Tenure Fight played our first show. But, you know, they would mostly have sometimes hardcore shows, but it was more kind of like, in not indie rock, but just kind of like, you know, bands that would play like uh, Pixies covers and like, uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of blistering in the sun <laughs> going on there. Okay. So it was like, so it was like kids, like mostly just pogoing and like, like kind of just kind of goofy dancing and you'd go from that and then into going to, to uh, shows in Boston where kids were just or, like grow. It looked like grown men to me, just murdering each other. You know, yeah. so it was, it was, it was a, it was a weird mix. No, I had a similar thing and I'm going to do a podcast on this where I basically just narrate for two hours and just explain that. Like you don't just show up and we're the coolest people in hardcore. Oh, no. And so like my first shows, a lot of them, I seen concerts and obviously because I seen like hardcore bands first, but like the local shows in our, in our neighborhood in the city were such a weird juxtaposition against like the hardcore scene downtown. Yes. And and, you know, like you said, how you said there was like the Pixies covers. It's like the local bands from our neighborhood until we kind of linked up with the hardcore people were like either really sloppy punk or they were like sort of Nirvana bands. Yep. And that was very awkward for me because I didn't really fuck with that music, but like I was like, okay, my friends are here. I'm going. So I, I relate a lot to what you're saying. There's like this. Right. And then you would go downtown. And like I said in another episode, like there were straight up dudes with fucking beards and tattoos. Yes. And you're like, oh shit. Yeah. I mean, and that was the time when like if someone had tattoos, like that, it yeah. meant something. You know, yeah, it, it was a real fucking deal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was so weird because. Like, like you were saying with those like Nirvana type bands or like, you know, Pixies type bands when you're, when you're that age, like 
even if you're not that into that music, something there about it, the whole energy, like it's not the same as hardcore, but it's getting there. You know, it's like you feel like a little bit of a taste of it and you're just trying, you, you know, it's kind of like just, it's like a glossed over version of it. It's like a real safe, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just, it's just, it's like the kid friendly version of a, of a, yeah. you know, hardcore show. Yeah. It's like the yeah. softened, like, uh, I always use the term now, which is like, a, I don't, you got kids, so you know, SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah. Yeah. They have like the, uh, in the movie, they have the Weenie Huts Jr. It's like, yeah. <laughs> no, you're not allowed there. Go to the Weenie Huts. Like, yep. and, and that's like, what it was. But it's like also like for us, and, you know, I was younger than a lot of the people in hardcore in the city. So I was, of age at them shows and younger at the hardcore shows, but I didn't really relate to the young kids, but it was that kind of like beginning of like, as we would use the term of today, normalize. I was getting normalized to being in a like non-concert, but show atmosphere. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's funny. It's like, uh, it's like those, those were like, once you started going in into the city to the shows, it was like parental controls were off. It was just like (laughs) anything could go. Um, and it's getting normalized into it. It's it's funny because even today, like, like I think about it sometimes and like, you know, if you just be out somewhere, uh, at a store or at the mall or well these days not but like before you know all this stuff was happening where you could you could go out and like or you be at the movies like be at the movies with my wife and you have just kind of like you know like uh like frat boy type dudes that just want to mess with you with our friends and they think oh who's this guy you know but in in the back of your head it's like dude you have no idea what i've seen <laughs> like give me give me whatever you got you know what i mean because it's just, I was never a tough guy and I never really had to throw down much luckily, but I I've seen, you know, we, we've seen things. I'm sure you've seen things. You've been through things that most people can't even fathom, you know, you know, that, but on the same, the same token, I have to remind myself, I don't know what this guy's been through either. He could be coming back from Iraq or something and he doesn't give a fuck. So (laughs) you gotta, you gotta keep that in mind as well. But I feel like the movie theater is where like these packs of young kids are always like they're fucking testosterone or horny and they're fucking just jumping. And I mean, I'm talking about even into the point when we, we were all crewed up and we would go to the movies for like a premiere. Right. There'd be some fucking young high school Turks, like who the fuck are these guys? And they would next thing you know, they'd be like, Hey, we're sorry. Uh, We didn't get it. And we'd be like, look, young man, eat your fucking popcorn. Watch the movie. You don't want this. Yeah. And it was like, but it'd be like 20 of them. And so I get the, I get the presentation and I think, I think it's a part of just being young and like being, like you said about like that, but more reference to shows, but like when when you're bottled up in a, like a home environment, I think in any atmosphere where you're around a group of your friends, you get excited. Like, because how often are you really in a group of your friends until you're an adult? And then it's like right. more kind of boring. Like, well, it's weddings and funerals and maybe yeah. a birthday party. And so there's, it's like so- this, there's like this atmosphere where you just feel fearless when you're in your, in your group of friends as a kid. There's also something to it. And like, like I said, I want to come off like I'm like, I'm not trying to talk like I'm a tough guy because I'm not, but I've been definitely punched in the face really good a few times. And once you get punched in the face and have like your teeth knocked down your throat, uh, you're you behave a little differently. You know what I mean? Like you're not so quick to just to be that 
you know, the, the loud mouth in the, in a group of kids causing trouble, you know, randomly, you know, you're a little bit hesitant. You're, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I was talking about with someone the other day. I just feel like, uh, every, you know, every, every, every guy, you know, I don't want to say guy, but kind of guy, you know, <laughs> most guys should really get punched in the face once or twice. No, I, uh, I think it's like, I think it's a huge uh, learning curve and I feel, and I don't want to be the person that says like this generation, cause I can't speak for everybody, but I feel accepting that what we do has consequences and understanding, mm. understanding. It's exactly a, the point. Yeah. I had a young, I had a, my daughter lived with me through her entire teens and she was, you know, excitable. And I had to explain to her cause I had a different perspective at the time. I said, Every time you feel that you are trying to be aggressive with someone, you're accepting not only the violence that you want to put onto them, but what can come back to you. Yes. And, and, you know, for her, my my point was, even if you are being the aggressor because you think you're going to have the upper hand, sometimes you have to expect the the fallback to what's going to come from it, whether it's, hey – yeah, she's going to hit me, so I'll hit her harder. But you can get in a lot of trouble. And as a yeah. young kid, the trouble part didn't get it. But as a father, I had to say to her, like, hey, listen, like, I don't expect you to not defend yourself, but don't go looking for it either. Right, right. It, and I feel that younger kids, I see, via, via only what I see the conversations on the Internet, I feel like the projection is that they are seeking conflict, but I don't see the part of them that makes me go – Oh yeah, these kids have really been like really out there, you know. They like want, they want the rush from it, but not the consequences, and that's kind of it, I guess. You know, this is a strange tangent, but like, no, it's a good no. You know, it's, it's, it's it's a it's a it's a lot about you kind of growing up, and I think there's a lot of people in hardcore who take one being a hardcore person, and they wear it like a shield of armor and a fucking sword. Like, you know, I went to fucking hardcore shows, and I feel that it reveals a lot about your honesty. Right. By, by by shedding it and saying, hey, listen, I went to shows and I was never a tough guy because a lot of people who are more like what you said, like not really the mosher, more insulated, kind of act like because they went to shows 20 years ago, they're the baddest person. And, and oh, I've right. got, I'm, in I'm, person, I've never got it. With, <laughs> I never got that from you. But also just it's good to hear you a person and hardcore from that time period not act like the baddest motherfucker. So it's actually, it's very genuine and it's cool to hear someone say that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's, I mean, let's see. I had, I had something that I wanted to add to that. Um, oh yeah. Along the lines of what you're saying to your daughter. Yeah. I mean, and I try to tell my kids this, even when they're, they're, they're playing with each other and they get true off. It's like, if you're going to, if you're going to hit someone or, or, you know, you know, basically bring it to someone, you better expect whatever you're bringing to come back to you tenfold. And if you're not ready for that, you know, don't start it, you know? No, I think it's a lesson that because of so much of internet activity is what happens. People don't see the repercussion aspect. Yeah. So obviously your parents would show what you go into these shows and they were kind of like, well, he's coming home in one piece or you're getting some shit for like, yeah, the occasional black eye or, how was that with mom and dad while you're early in high school going uh, down to city for shows? Yeah, a little here and there, not too much. Uh, honestly, they were they were pretty mellow about everything because um, it, it wasn't. I, I guess you know because I was I wasn't 
like in eighth grade trying to go. If it was that point, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to get away with as, as many things. And um, I don't know, man. It was like, it was a lot different than it is now. I can't imagine letting my kids go down to Boston, even when they're like a freshman in high school or sophomore in high school, like right now. But yeah, somehow I, I didn't get in too much hassle from my parents. So you're going to high school with the kids that you were uh, doing BMX with. Were there other hardcore kids in your high school? And that was kind of, or were you guys kind of like the lone hardcore kids at their school? There were some that were, there was definitely a group of us. Uh, and, and at that point I was skateboarding. I was skating a lot more. And like most of the kids were, were yeah, I would skate with and we'd end up going to shows together. And they were kind of, um, it's not that they weren't into hardcore, but they were just kind of into all kinds of stuff. They were just as much into like, you know, alternate, like what I would have called alternative music, like the cure and that type of stuff as they were in a hardcore. It was just that they could get to hard. We could all kind of go to these shows together. Um, and, and it was, it was just easier access, I guess, than trying to like wait for, you know, every six months to go to one of these, you know, like big kind of like, you know, rock concerts, you know? So I, think I feel like, I feel like skate culture back then too was wide open. Yeah. You know, like you had skaters here that were really into like the goats and graffiti stuff, but then also knew about uh hardcore, but then also were fucking around with raves. I felt like yep. the skate culture was kind of like the weird uh intersection where all these weird subcultures that were blossoming in the nineties bisected. And I feel like the skaters carried on kind of like a little bit of everything from that. Yeah, no, I think, I think definitely. Um, and yeah, like the, the BMX, you know, at that, at that point in my life, I was, I was still, you know, I guess I was riding BMX a lot, but not as much. I was more kind of shifting towards skating because a lot of my friends at road weren't riding anymore. Um, and for me, it was a, like, I could just hop in the car with my friends with a skateboard a lot easier than I could bring a bike. So that kind of shifted a little bit there. And then, and then, you know, you, you're hanging around with people and you're going to shows and, and you're doing all these things and like all the influences kind of rub off on you. Um, but I would say by the time, uh, and, and at that point, everyone was straight edge too. But, but, but I remember vividly, there was like a party, like our, my senior year of high school. Um, and everyone went and decided to drink except for like me and like two of my friends. And, uh, after that, it was like, I don't know. It was, it was, it, it was, I, I didn't have as like, uh, as a developed, you know, like sense of self, I guess. So it was more like, oh, they, they fucking betrayed me. Fuck them. I don't want anything to do with them for a while, you know, type of thing. Like, um, which is really still carried on till <laughs> through. I mean, you can see that in a lot of my lyrics, probably like is, is people getting upset for other people breaking edge. Like, I'm not going to say, I don't understand it. I totally get it, especially at that age. But like, it's such a weird thing when I think about it now. Um, Cause I don't really want someone going around saying they're straight edge if they don't, not that it's up to me, but like, I, I would prefer people just be honest. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a weird thing. Uh, but, you know, I went through a, many different groups of friends with, with that happening, like 
and it's kind of a, it's not even so much, a lot of it wasn't even, I think so much like, Hey, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. As I got older, it was just like, they just wanted to do other things that I w- didn't want to be part of. And I would still hang around with them, but it was like, you know, once a week as opposed to every day. No, I, I had to, that's, that describes my entire childhood up until, I think up until three days ago, <laughs> I have <laughs> always had friend groups and I have a lot of friend groups. And I mean, for the city, there's a lot of different small friends groups and they all kind of like, we can get a big groups all together and then small little groups. I, I relate to what you're saying. And I find that now as a 40 year old person who's been straight edge for more than half my life, it is a disappointing factor when you see some young kid and their mentality is like, I love being straight edge. And then boom, they're not straight edge anymore. But I, 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 I am in the boat that you're in. If this isn't for you, God bless you. Yeah. I, I said to someone, I, I truly believe that obviously there's an entire culture and there's an amazing support group that comes from being straight edge. And in my later years, there's people that are gravitating to straight edge just to hold on their sobriety and have their life not fall in the tatters. And I, and I love that idea, but I, I think that straight edge should just be what it needs to be for a person for whatever time that they need it. And it's on them. It's their commitment. And, and but it does suck, especially as a young person, because you feel like, yo, these are the people that I can hang around with where I don't have to worry about that shit. Right. And, and, and then you feel like your whole world kind of implodes. Like now it's just me again. So that's, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, that's, that's hard to deal with when you're young. And I, I find that um, we need to seek out, whether it's in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, you need to seek out people that do the best for what you are up to at that moment. You can still love the people that you don't see all the time, but you always have to find people that you're able to represent yourself the best with. And a lot of people get locked in the bad social groups or they're afraid to like, man, I don't really identify what these guys are up to right now, but I don't want to, you know, like no one wants to be the person to walk away, but I've always been in a weird situation where I kind of live between two neighborhoods. So I had friends and all that. And that started off so early that I was always able to manage multiple friend groups. Right. Now sliding into where you are angry and you're straight edge. Where does the, where does the first bit of, Hey, I want to say in a band come from. Oh, I mean, that was one of those things that I would, you know, I think I thought about it in high school and I would, I'd always be like, Oh, Cause I had, I had friends that were trying to do different bands and stuff, but um, yeah, they actually did a few bands and, and they were good, but I always kind of had this thought in my back, in the back of my mind, Oh, maybe, maybe they'll start some other band and they'll, they'll need a singer and I'll give it a try. And, but it, it never really happened. But, um, it, and honestly, I didn't know if I could do it. I had no idea. I didn't really think I could, but it was one of those, like, you know, I th- I think I always had like a different goal, like kind of dream goals that I wanted to do as, as a kid. Like, you know, one would be to sing in a hardcore band. The other would be like a pro BMXer and a pro skateboarder. Um, and I just didn't have the talents for either of those two things. Uh, I didn't think I had the talent for singing in a band either, but I think the way, the way it actually happened was, uh, I was living 
it was in college living in an apartment with John LaCroix and Anthony Papalardo. And we just were, we didn't, we weren't taking it seriously. It was just supposed to be a joke. And I think that's the only reason they kind of let me even try it. <laughs> um, and no one, and, and to be honest with you, like the first practices to get it down, they were all, they're all like trying to like go through it with me. And I, for some reason I could not get it. And then, and then one day, I, I don't know, I guess it just clicked. And, um, but it wasn't until we actually recorded the demo that anyone could hear what I sounded like. And I just remember them, you know, trying to like lay down a song and just being super nervous. Cause I had no idea. And then they, they listened back and they came in and they were, I thought they were, I, I truly thought they were fucking with me. Cause they were like over the top, like excited. And I, and I was just like, wow. Okay. So you're basically hanging out with, uh, <laughs> With, with some serious fucking musicians at the time. And they're like, yeah, you, you, yeah, we'll just do this. That's got to be a little intimidating because it doesn't sound like unless you never really fucked with music as like a kid growing up. Did you? No, I mean, I Not can't play or anything like that. I, I can't, you know, I took, I was forced to take piano lessons for, for a year or two, but like I hated it. Cause I, you know, I just, now I wish I had tried it a little harder because be, I love to be able to play something, but I can't play an instrument to save my life. To be honest with you, like, um, none of those dudes really. So John just basically pick up, picked up the bass and started messing with it like a week before we, we had our, our first practice. Oh, okay. Uh, so it was way Anthony, early in your career too. Okay. Yeah. Like pop, like Andy Popolardo had been playing and he had played in a couple bands, but he wasn't, uh, like, you know, he was, he was decent. He was the best of us probably, but he, he wasn't like super tight either at that point. I don't think, I mean, I'm not trying to be insulting, but like, um, Ben Chusid, who, who was playing drums when we started, he had played bass and battery, um, and some other bands, I think, but, but he had never really played drums. He, like, you know, he just kind of was like, oh yeah, I just started playing drums. I'll do it. And so like, and the only one who was real solid had been playing for a long time was Chris Patterson. He was in, um, what was the band he was called? Never, uh, shit, he's going to kill me for forgetting this. I can't remember. He was a fairly well-known Boston <laughs> band. <laughs> um, it was never, not never enough. Shit, I can't remember. <laughs> It'll um, come to you in like 10 minutes. Watch. It will. But, but yeah, like, and you know, so he was solid and we were all just trying to figure it out, but we had this just, I don't know. It was just like a concept that we thought was funny. And we, we thought it would really just kind of piss people off and get a rise out of people. We didn't expect anyone to like, to like it really other than our friends. Like, well, I think a lot of, I think a lot of hardcore bands basically start the exact same way. You know, it's like, Hey, I want to do a band. And the overriding of like, hey, are we good enough? Is like so tertiary to like, yo, all of my friends want to do this, man. We're doing this fucking band. Right. So I mean, that's pretty a, a very common way to start. I mean, we always said it was kind of like just just a joke that went too far. Cause like we would sit around because we were all living it. Well, me, John, and, and Anthony Popolato were all living together at the time. Was this because of college? Were you all living together? Yeah. Yeah. So they were going to mass art mass college of art in boston and i was going to northeastern which was right up the road so instead of um living in the dorms we got an apartment up in mission hill in boston and uh at the time there wasn't there was we were one of the first hardcore kids living in, in that neighborhood which 
uh, by the time I left, it was overrun by hardcore kids. Yeah, I was gonna say Mostly. I've I've slept in many a house overnight at a in, before, in Mission Hill. before or after a Boston hardcore show. In yeah, Mission Hill. I mean they they started doing shows in the houses there. Yeah, at one point. Um, but yeah, that was early on. It was like it was pretty ghetto, or it was like kind of lower income, uh, like families, like white families, and it was this weird like. And then you had like co- some college kids moving in. Um, it was just a weird neighborhood. If you went like two streets over, you could get in a lot of trouble like real quick. And then if you went just down the hill, you were just in college town, you know? So I don't know. It was just, a, it was a weird place, but we, we would just, you know, hang out like all night watching skate videos, like eating ramen noodles or whatever, and just talk about stupid shit. And that was just one of the things that kept coming up. And eventually we just, I, I we just kind of made that, you know, put, put it together somehow now let me ask something what was your uh what was your major in college at the time i was a so <laughs> i don't even know why the, the only reason i went to college honestly was because my parents kind of really wanted me to go i didn't want to go but i went and visited northeastern and they had this amazing computer lab um what looked like an amazing computer lab to me and and um in my mind, all I really, I wanted to go somewhere that I had access to, to, to make videos, but with a computer. Cause I had been doing like my own kind of like filming us, like skating or riding or whatever, or just messing around. But I would edit things like, like VCR to VCR, like real primitive. And it would just like, I had no access to real equipment. And in, and in my mind, I was going to go Northeastern and just be able to waltz in and get on some, on some computer and sit there and have this like, you know, $100,000 com- computer system at my fingertips to be able to edit on, which wasn't the case at all. It ended up being they had two systems that in the whole place and there was a wait list to get on and they were always broken. So like, I think I got one the whole time I was in college, I got on them for like, like maybe an hour total. So it was like, and I have... I would have been better off taking out a loan and buying a system because in the end, you know, I, you know, those systems were about a hundred grand. I probably ended up going to end up paying that <laughs> by the time I get done paying my loans. Um, so what I ended up having to pivot and do was uh, graphic design, which I like too, but it was never something that I really thought I had that much skill in that I want to do for a living. I only, I do stuff from like my own little projects, but I've never done any real paid graphic design work. So it was more just like a vehicle to, I guess, explore what college was, so to speak, than like, this is what you end up, you're being or living. Yeah, it kind of ended up, it was, it was like, it was a couple things like make my parents happy, get them off my back. Um, and, and I thought was going to be access to the, this, you know, crazy video editing equipment, which it wasn't, but it was access to, uh, computers to do like i could do graph learn graphic design and i like doing that because at the, that point i didn't have the access to to a computer like that either i hadn't even really gotten on a computer until i got into college was there something that if you could say to your parents then like would you say hey i want to do something different or would you think if you had to had it to muster up in you would you have said hey i don't want to do this at all if you could have done it see here's the thing like if I could go back, like I don't re- really re- regret it 
because it got me to where I am. So I, I you know, I just try to yeah, it's like, your path. look at it's the path I, that you took. Exactly. I look at things like, yeah, I can't regret anything up until the time I, I, I met my my wife and had my kids. You know what I mean? Because without what I did, I wouldn't be where I'm at. But that being said, really, what I should have done was just said, just manned up and just stood up to my parents and said, I don't want to fucking do this. This is, you know, this is this is a waste of my time. This is a waste of money. But like. You know, I had that thing where it was like kind of one foot in, one foot out for a long time. And it was really up until tenure fight was going to go to Europe that I really had to just be like, I, 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 I got to quit. Cause otherwise, cause if I didn't, I wouldn't have been able to go to Europe. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. And I didn't go back until you, like, I probably went back 15 years later just to, cause I had like a semester or two to finish and I figured I might as well. No, I had, a, I had an episode guest who was going through the same tribulation you were going to and wanted to change their major and went to their grandfather and was kind of like, this is how I feel. And the grandfather was like, whatever you want to do in life, you just got to be the best at it. And we kind of framed the episode name off of that. That's why I asked because it sounds like you were in that turmoil where you just didn't want to do that. That's the only reason why I even brought it up. Yeah, it wasn't even like that I didn't like doing design. It just, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to do it for a living. And I knew I had no idea what I really wanted to do. Like even still, like I thought I, you know, I was interested in video, but I, I, I still didn't see that as being a way to make a living. Cause I was like, I'm never going to be like a Hollywood director, you know? So I didn't see that there was like other things, you could yeah, do. other things that I could do. Cause at that point, like even that, you know, the equipment was so expensive. It wasn't, there, it wasn't um, as common, I guess, you know? So like, I was just, I was really kind of lost. And I, I guess the, the moral of the story there is like, you really have to, you have to, it's easier said than done. But if I could go back and do it, I would try to take more of a charge of my own, take charge of my own path, my own life is a little earlier, you know, because otherwise, you know, your parents want the best thing for you, but they're not you. They, they can't see in your head. So like, if you're just going along trying to make them happy, like to avoid conflict, like in the end, no one wins because it's always going to end up happening sooner or later. Well, I think it also kind of fueled a little mm-hmm. bit of what would be tenure at fight. Cause I know you said, I know that you have said that you were doing it and it was kind of like a joke, but um, obviously there's another band not uh, who came later than you guys called Throwdown, which was kind of like a joke. Yeah. Sometimes the bands that were not meant to be taken in a literal sense, get the fandom and i know that i believe unless i'm mistaken or the lore is wrong that you like came out at your first show and you were like wearing like a helmet and a foot was it was it helmet and pads or was it a helmet and a jersey because that was with the lore that people was like yeah. i remember people reading the zine like this guy came out and he was wearing helmets and pads for the first show or something like that well it wasn't a helmet but i went um i went like it was literally like hours before we were supposed to play this show I went to like the uh, local little like sport goods store where like all the, all like everyone go for like their team jerseys and stuff in high school. And I went in and got a blank Jersey off, off the wall and had him put the, the numbers on. It was 21. Cause I was 21 years old. And it was like, to me, that was like, that's when everyone kind of decides to start drinking. Um, and then I had him put, you know, it said tenured fight on the front and it had Moreski on the back and, and uh, I brought that out and the guys were like, what the hell are you doing? And, and uh, I was like, just go, you know, they, but they went with it. They thought it was hysterical. 
Um, and it was, I don't remember the exact date, but it was in, I think it was in October. It was right around Halloween. So I stopped at like a, you know, drugstore or something and got like, um, Halloween makeup, just black makeup. And I put like the black under my eyes. Oh, okay. That's what it was. Okay. I had, I wore like cut off camo shorts, which was definitely not really a thing at that point. You know, that was just kind of like, you know, people weren't really doing that. And I had like these old Nike high tops that I had in my closet for like, you know, since like the eighties. And I, and I just had this like full on, like stereotypical, aside from the football Jersey, it was kind of like the stereotypical, like youth crew look going. And, um, we just came out and we, it was a, it was a weird show. Like I said, we played the, the, the red barn in North Andover mass. I was, I, we just got thrown on. It was piebald and cave in. I want to say it wasn't converged, but and it was definitely like piebald and cave in. And it, like, imagine us like us playing with piebald, piebald and cave in sounds real strange, but at the time they were both still coming up. They weren't what you would even think of as, you know how you would remember them now um and they were just like it was just like local kids that we knew in these bands and they were like yeah you can get on so we we got on the show and uh did not expect anyone to like it at all we had i think we might have had like 20 demos did we have demos we didn't have demos i think we just had shirts we had something we definitely had shirts but we had like a couple dozen shirts that we printed in our apartment we played maybe eight songs we did a cover of cross me like from by project x but we like you know that song is like what eight seconds long i think we played it like maybe four or five times during the set just randomly (laughs) um and we were just being goofy and like uh, apparently some kids were into it because there was no one there weren't really bands playing that style hardcore at the time and a, a lot of kids might not have ever even seen it you know no, I definitely feel that 10-yard fight specifically when that demo came around was the beginning of a kind of new era for that entire style, like a second wave of it, so to speak. And I and I know because of the Philadelphia area, the people that were going to shows were into some of the other kind of stuff, but that was like kind of like a call to arms because right after that, there were so many bands from the area that came, was sort of coming out, you know? Well, yeah, it was, I mean, and I don't know who started it. Floor Punch may have started before us. I, 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 I'm not sure, but they were definitely getting going around the same time. And it's funny because if you look at, um, those are the dudes that you would have thought would have done 10 year fight. Cause those dudes are legit sports, like into sports where it's none of us really, I mean, maybe Ben and, and later on Clevo, but me and John and, and, and Anthony Popular were not into football, like really, you know. Um, for us, it was more of kind of like a gimmicky, like it was totally tongue in cheek, like a metaphor, almost just making, using it to turn on, like basically turn on the jo- like the jocks in high school who would make fun of us for skateboarding or, or you know, like, you know, being straight edge. Like in my mind, it was kind of like turning it on them, you know. That's why like the football thing was like even funnier to me. It's like we're taking your thing and turning it on you, you know. Um, but I, but I, but I think Floor Punch was was definitely coming up about the same time. I remember getting their demo. Like um, I may have even gotten it 
one of, I think our second show was actually in Philly. I think it's the lag 13. Does yeah, that sound it right? Was. Uh, and yes, that it went, was. that went really well. We had demos at that show and we sold out the, our first show. We had some t-shirts, maybe a couple dozen t-shirts and we sold out of those. And I was just like, I couldn't even understand. I didn't, I was confused by the whole thing. I was like, why would anyone want our t-shirts that we don't know? Cause the kids that we didn't know were buying them. I was like, made no sense to me. I remember what was, uh, at that time I was very much, uh, obsessed with hardcore in that way that if it said hardcore on it, it looked like hardcore you're buying it. And I remember zines. Cause that was like the, might as well be the fucking websites of today. Right. Obviously so many people, when you pick up a local zine, we're talking about, you know, 10 yard fight is bringing back to error, a straight edge and all this stuff. And Philadelphia was really locking in on that. And, uh, I remember the big deal was like you guys went to Big Wheel for Hardcore Pride, the seven inch. Yes, and Big Wheel, as we learned from our episode one with Chris from Bridge Nine, they were the big enchilada as far as like hard, like as far as like Boston record labels at the time. They kind of like yeah, because they preceded like uh they were they were there before Bridge Nine is what I was kind of getting at like that like they were the oh they were there before Bridge Nine and like yeah. and I don't want to. I don't remember exactly, but I think like Rama was a guy doing big wheel and he had, so, so John LaCroix used to do extent fanzine. Awesome. And he used to have them CDs every, every once in a the while. The samplers. Yeah. And yeah, they're Rama, fucking great. he worked in, in him and Rama kind of, I think Rama helped him with that for, and, man, I, I want to say he may have interned with John while he was doing extent. And at the same time he was starting, um, he was starting big wheel and I don't know how many records he actually put out. We like, I don't, I don't know. I could look, I think we might be like number three or something. Like he had done 454 big block, I think before us. Fuck yeah. But other, and I can't remember what else he had done, but it wasn't a lot. And I, um, and so by the time, yeah, so we, we went with him cause he was our friend and he was like, he knew how to put out a record. He had done a couple and he offered to do it because on, honestly, we were just like, sure. Like, why not? Like, we had no idea how to do it. We weren't going to do it ourselves. Um, and then, you know, he helped us book a, a couple tours, which just kind of like East Coast tours. Uh, and then I think the second time we might have been out on tour, like, I guess he got a call from Equal Vision and Equal Vision wanted to take it over. And I think after that, he was able to really like dive that helped him dive in more and do more things and grow. Um, so by the time that Chris was working with Rama, Rama was kind of the, (laughs) excuse the pun, but the big wheel, I guess in town. No, it's, it's cool to hear from that perspective, (laughs) just because a lot of what obviously is not, it's taken for granted. It's just like where you guys were at and where hardcore was at. Like, um, that this label that would become something bigger, you were at the beginning of their stuff and you were able to help them. They were able to help you. And obviously you guys would get on the do equal vision. And um, what I was going to get to before, and we started jumping into more of the band activity was I want to ask you if you think because of your displeasure or like, you know, your discontentment with being in the major that you're at with college, why you were getting more like focused in the band. Do you think one helped, 
make the band thing become a priority to you? Or do you think it was, you would have done it even if you loved your major in college? Um, I, I mean, if I was totally in love with what I was doing at school, uh, yeah, I may never have even gotten involved with the band. Um, so there you go. But, <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, yeah, I mean, but because I didn't think it was like, it was one of those things that was to me, it was like a, it was kind of just like a pipe dream, you know, it was like, Oh, I want to be a pro skateboarder. Sure. If someone could grant me a wish, like a, a genie would come out of the bottle and give me three wishes. It would have been, you know, har- a hardcore singer, pro skateboarder, pro BMX or like all rolled in a one. That's what I would do. But, um, it, so, so the, so 10 year fight thing, like that really just kind of came out of left field. I didn't expect it to go anywhere. It wasn't like, like I said, it was kind of a joke gone, gone far. It wasn't like I was, it, there was no plan to do that to escape college. But once it, it took on kind of a life of its own, it's like, Hey, here's another way I can, this is, I'm into this. I want to spend my time doing this. I don't know where it's going to go, but I know I don't want to spend my time over here. You know, like it, it's a school just, you know, throwing my money away. So I don't know if that answers the question, but. No, no, it definitely does. And I think one of the things that I was, I, I was noticing your story is that you did have that kind of like, Oh man, this isn't for me. So a lot of people find, and, I, and it's not to dis this hardcore, but it becomes a part of that of age moment between the teens and college era where people get fixated on aspects of hardcore because what's going on in their real life doesn't have that great traction, right. but here's traction in a band form. Now you're traveling to Philadelphia. You're up and down the East coast. You're, you're doing this thing that you thought, Oh, this is going to be fun. But you guys had traction pretty quickly, man. Like, and, and so I could see how that would give you some kind of like excitement that you weren't getting from college. So it, it does explain that, although it's, it wasn't your first pick, but, it does, it does kind of fill the shoes. And obviously, as you said, later on, these things would help you down the line with what you would end up doing for a living and such. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, the traction thing was weird because at that point, there was a sort of internet, but it was it was like, uh, we, just like message boards. Like I had never even been on it. Like I had one, one friend of ours, Steve Kim, who would go on like these weird like. Great dude. Yeah, these weird little like chats, and he would tell us. To, he would tell us that kids were talking about us. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, and um, I I think bef- before we did anything, we made these. We made a bunch of just stickers. We and um, we went around town and we would just put stickers everywhere around Boston, and it was like Boston Straight Edge, and it was like so. Like before anyone knew anything about us, they had already seen all the stuff around town, and it was just kind of like. I guess we just built up this, 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 uh, it was almost like a myth. Like kids, like I would, kids would talk about us. Like we were these big, crazy, like, like jock dudes that would just go around beating up people that weren't straight edge. Like that was like the myth about us, which was like the furthest thing from the truth. But like, it just made this weird buzz. And, um, I guess if you, and if you had that and then you heard or saw a picture or, or heard the the demo like and didn't really know anything about us you might buy into that you know and it, and it just kind of like just it just generated this like this machine it's funny because like when i years later when i talked to choke um when we were when uh me and ian mcfarland were doing the 
chip on my shoulder documentary, he kind of said that they, I mean, like what he, the way he explained Slapshot and how they started and how it was more of a, it was like a mark, like it was marketing. Like it, it was a kind of exactly what we did without knowing it. Like I had, we had no idea, but, but, but they had this, they had built up a folklore about them before they had even played a show. And it was like, holy shit, that's exactly what we did. And, I, and it was, it was, we just stumbled upon it, you know? Well, I think zine culture specifically had a hand in kind of purveying not an anti-straight edge sentiment at the time, but stories carried through fanzines that were kind of like telephone game where yep. someone would hear something, someone would hear something. And then next thing you know, it's, oh, 10. And, and obviously, and it's cool that you brought up Cho because I want to say like Boston straight edge is a ripping his town, you know, like that's a real thing. Yeah. But also you guys kind of like woke that demon back up. And so, you know, many of people listening know that Boston hardcore has always had a rougher outlook and uh, their shows were in fantastically exciting, but there was a very roughness to it. So it's not without reason that if you juxtapose kind of like the way that people were viewing people being straight edge. And the funny thing is, is like some of that straight edge momentum was coming from the more vegan and the more metallic yeah. stuff. But it was getting lumped on every straight edge band at that time. Like, oh, them guys hate people who don't do, you know, like, right. You know, and it was always weird because we grew up in a large group of friends. Some weren't straight edge, some are. And some be like, yo, some of them bands beat people up for not being straight edge. And we'd be like, yeah. And what, like, what the fuck? Like, you know, like, there's always stories, but well, obviously it was, it's, it, it was uh, all because of fanzines and people not seeing it up front. Well, there was that whole, and I think this came a bit later, the whole Salt Lake thing where like you know kids carving you know straight well actually that was a part of it at the time like that was like a a moment because of so many like you know it's like a thing you know you add a layer you add a layer you add a layer you know like and so you guys and floor punch and you know there was some incendiary vocalists who were in much smaller bands like some especially in in philadelphia there were some more incendiary level smaller straight edge bands and you know our friends i hate you had a big hand and kind of like Yeah. somewhat tongue-in-cheek but then also not tongue-in-cheek right you know right. like there was a different error of hardcore and straight edge because you got you know the collective group of bands that didn't sound like earth crisis and those kind of bands were are part of a big aspect of what would eventually become a huge part of the east coast hardcore so i, I definitely heard them same kind of story so it's funny you brought it up and then also to tie it back into slap shot you know well, it's kind of, yeah, slap shot, judge. It was kind of like, so like when, when we started, like we're like, you know, one of the thing was like, it definitely slap shot was an influence, not, not our sound, but like our, our kind of image. You know what I mean? We took the sports theme. Uh, we didn't, they took theirs from a movie. We took, we took our name from a video game. And it was like, it gave us, but we just, we were like, you know, we'll, we'll take it one step further and use, take that and use the metaphor like the whole demo is just like metaphors you know what i mean of football metaphors and it was a way to kind of like say this angry you know get the angry straight edge thing out but kind of not hide behind it but but use the football metaphors so that hopefully people understood it was tongue-in-cheek and kind of a joke but it was still but it was serious at the same time like the message was serious to a point you know we weren't trying to like beat anyone up or anything we weren't we weren't about that but we were still kind of angry about it you know what i mean because 
we're coming from a place where it was like, we wanted to see Youth Today. We wanted to see Gorilla Biscuits. Like, we wanted to see these bands or bands like that were playing stuff like them because we were still all about it. But, like, there weren't many. Like, bands had moved on. Like, the sound had moved on. And, all, and, and even even the, the straight, there was still plenty of straight edge kids, but it was like a different thing. You know what I mean? It was like, if the, I, I remember like the closest thing we had to, to a, a band coming through like that was ignite and going to see ignite. And, the, and it, it's not that people weren't coming out, but they weren't into it a lot of, a lot of times. I see, was, I see ignite at that time frame, And I feel like for as much as the records got a lot of fanfare, I feel like, the East coast didn't really understand what ignite was all about. No, man. They, they weren't paying them their due. And it was one of the, like, really it made us kind of angry. So, so that was fueling it. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of, I, I guess like, you know, I mentioned judge, like, you know, hearing Mike judge talk about it all these years later, how like, you know, they were angry and they had these angry lyrics, but like, it sounded like, they didn't really mean that either. You know what I mean? Like they weren't trying to like incite violence, at least from what I can take from, from, from what they, they say about it. I mean, poor cell is kind of like the most posy dude. You can think I, know, of, uh, you know. I know, I know what really, really touched Mike in a negative way was the adaptation of the hammers in the South Florida with Nazis and stuff. And that really oh, kind God. of, that was like the antithesis of what he was looking for when he did the band. But I feel specifically with hardcore lyrics, especially at that time frame and in general, they're not literal transcriptions of what we really feel. They're supposed to be an outlet. It's so emotion. It to, exactly. It, it, and emotion has to be raw. You know, they're not literal. And I, and I find that sometimes people take a literal sense and there has to be some kind of storytelling and hyperbole that comes from saying something and getting it out and, and letting it be a release. And so I, I, I definitely, I never, I never was like at a 10 yard fight show, but man, any minute now, this straight edge gang is going to jump. The woods. It was never the case. It was actually people excited. And I, and I say this, I said this to, of all people, um, Jules from side by side. I said, you know, I grew up in an era where there was a lot of straight edge bands excited about the old style of straight edge. So it was not uncommon. In fact, it happened like two separate times where I went to a show and by the end of the sets of all the bands, you heard the entire alone in the crowd, seven inch, right? Because the bands of that era were covering one would do one, one would do the other. So like you got these, uh, that's my actual basis to have such a love for that era of hardcore because I missed it. Yeah. And to see all your bands covering them kind of was like, well, fuck, I got to learn this too. You know, like, <laughs> fuck, it's one more bands I have to learn because you constantly heard these covers and and you guys actually s- sowed the seed again for that kind of stuff. And I, I think it's important to understand that. And I, I want to thank you guys for doing it just because what you guys were doing and excited about instilled and then, you know, sowed the seed to us and then for us to do it again, you know, like it, it was important you guys were doing that. No, thank you. I appreciate that. But I got to be honestly, like, like I said, I think floor punch was starting at the same time. I think we were really just right place at the right time. Cause if we hadn't done it, it was someone else was bound to do it. I mean, fast break was starting at that, about that same time. Of course. I mean, they were a lot younger. Well, that's what I'm saying by the, the more like the proverbial you guys, like there were so many bands, right. right. Like, a, like it was like that. And it's kind of like a, what they say, like a, 
not a unique uh, invention or um, discovery, but it was kind of like a multiple discovery scenario. Yes, there was. Yeah. There were bands in. There were literally bands in Boston, Connecticut, uh, not in Long Island, but definitely in Pennsylvania, South Jersey. Like it was. It was just popping up. Like boom, 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 boom. Well, it was. It was a cycle, but I think you know it now you see it now like every couple of years like hardcore goes in cycles but at the yeah, time absolutely. it was so new we didn't i don't know if we even knew that and, and we weren't like smart enough to think about it that way we were just angry that what we liked went away and we were tired of what was going on like if we had just probably if we had sat back and waited you know someone else may have done it but they may but i know other bands did do it but i'm sure someone else from boston would have come up and done it at some point but again it, it also I don't know. It sort of goes back to like one of the biggest things, not to turn it too much, but like one of the biggest thing I, I learned from hardcore is like, if you're not happy with what's going on, don't complain about it. Just get up and, and, and do something better. You know, do what you think, do what you want to see, you know, make what you want to see, make the band you want to hear, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, I think you know that better than anyone. No. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, going forward to talk about what you, uh, did with don't stand in line we you and myself and everybody else where we're able to we need to showcase the kind of people that became the doers that saw an opening or an opportunity or a window where they said hey i either can do something someone did in a different way or has anybody done it this way and i feel that because hardcore is a diy culture and it's so malleable at any given time some kid could wake up with an idea and move it forward and especially with the rapid technology that lets ideas move so fucking fast. Like you said about that digital, you said about that editing software, that's like a hundred thousand dollars. I bet that software you have on a, on a reg, I, I'm not a, I'm not really too familiar. I have a, I have a pretty crappy PC, but even I have a video making software. That's like, you know what this PC might've been 500 bucks. It's crazy to think now how quick that the digital age of what we are dealing with as like, Oh, this is common. Wasn't common at, at the outset of you doing all this. It's, it's even, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, it's even crazier than that. Not just the iPhone I have now, the iPhone I had five years ago was a hundred times better than that equipment that I had in college. I mean, it even had the camera built into it. That was better than any camera you could, I could have got my hands on then. Yeah. So, so it, it's amazing. So this is this is an important factor for people listening. It's like the tools that are in the hands that you guys have now are what people, what we're talking about then, would dream to have. And so hardcore is so malleable. I think exactly what you said is important to touch on. That you know, if you want to, if you want to do something, start something. People will support it. And I mean, so we're gonna we're not gonna talk about every single ten yard fight show because there's so much more cool shit that you've done later on. But I think it's important to mention that. I mean. There, we we really have to just look at that time. It's like that was a golden time. And uh, in, in linear progression, was you stopping going to college to go to Europe first? Or how did it work where it was like Europe and then you were like, hey, we're going to put this record out and then tour? Or how did it work where you end up doing all that stuff and then saying, hey, we're going to break the band up? Give me how it went from so higher, the beginning, middle, and end, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, so we – let's see. Shit, had back in track come out yet when we went to Europe? I think it was out. I think we f- were on the plane to Europe New Year's Eve. I think it was 
going 97 into 98, I believe. Um, and at that point I had taken a semester off of college and, uh, like the, that fall winter semester or whatever, like I had taken that off just to work and try and figure stuff out. And we got this offer to go to Europe and it was kind of like, you know, my dad would basically looked at me. He's like, either you're going back to college or you're going to do your band, make a choice, which is something I wish he had, to- had said to me years before. Um, but it's really something that I should have said to myself years before. So at that point I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to be done with college. I'm doing the band. This, I'm going to see where this goes. So I think that, so I believe that was 98. Yeah. And then we did a summer, you know, with the Europe was awesome. We did that. And then we did a summer tour in 98, you know, we did our thing. We just kept going. We put out the only way. I think that came out at the end of 98 or the beginning of 99. And we were just, uh, we had a tour, a summer tour scheduled. No, not a, not a summer tour. We had a, um, another European tour that we were supposed to do within my eyes in the summer of 99. And then, which when I think about it now, like, I don't know why the hell we broke up before we did that tour. That was a real bad move in hindsight, but, I don't know what was going on with us. Like we were arguing about the stupidest stuff. I know part of it was like me and John LaCroix had wanted to move to California. Like we were literally supposed to move. I think, well, that's not true. Like if we hadn't started the band, we had, we would have been out there already. Like, like years, a couple of years before probably. Okay. Um, so in the back of our minds, we we're like, man, this thing is going like, this is great. But like, some point we wanted to get out there and cause, cause we weren't like under the impression that this was going to be our life. You know what I mean? Like, like we're not gonna, we're not going to do this full time. Like you can't, you know, it's cause we had seen other bands try to do it. And it's like, we had talked about it. It's like, okay, we either, if we either, I'm getting all over the place. We no, me, no, me actually, wanted to go out to California and just start. We wanted to get in working in the skateboard or BMX industries or something like that. You know, or he wanted to do like, he was doing graphic design, was laying out magazines. Like he wanted to get his thing going and I wanted to get my thing going. And, um, we were just been doing a lot of like touring and working part-time jobs. You know how that goes. Just trying to make things happen. Being in a band that's like well-known and kind of popular, but not, not enough to really pay the bills. So it was just like this weird struggle. Um, and we were just getting on each other's nerves. We had gone through. Plus, a you guys had different. different you guys had different lineups. Members. Yeah, and then uh, unless I'm mistaken, I remember reading a zine something about Clevo. He went. He was at the Gulf War, the first one, wasn't he, or something like that? Yeah. So he's a couple years older than me. Um, so we had at that point. At that point, we had it was me and John, uh, Clevo, uh, Tim from American Nightmare. Yeah, and then Ben was on drums, and like you know we had we were probably playing our best shows, probably sounding the best we had ever sounded. We had just put out the only way, which was starting to take off. Um, like our sound was kind of in my mind, kind of evolving a bit like back on track was a little weird. Cause we're like, we wrote it in the middle of like a lot of like weird lineup changes. And like, I was just trying to like, I had a hard time getting lyrics out for an LP. You know, it was just like, 
some of it just felt forced. I look back on that record and I think, man, if we had just made a seven inch out of some of these songs, it would have been kicked ass, you know, but you know, that is what it is. But like to go back to like where we were going to, where we broke up, that was like summer. That was summer 99. We had a show booked a weekend booked and we were supposed to play CBs. And we had this practice space that had like, it was like an old mill building in Boston. I think like six flights of stairs, maybe like at least four, four floors to go up with all our equipment because the freight elevator was broken. It was hot as fuck. <clears throat> we were just arguing nonstop with each other. <clears throat> and we just looked at each other. It was like, and we, we just said, you know, let's just not do this anymore. And uh, like, you serious? Are you serious? Yes. And that was kind of it. And then the funny thing is, as soon as we did that, all the tension was just like, and we were just goofing off and being friends and having fun again. Put our equipment back in, got into the car, and we drove to the Warp Tour where like Reach the Sky was playing and like uh, a bunch of our friends were just hanging out. And it was just like we just hung out like right after we broke up. And then we we're like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, let's plan, a, let's plan a final show and just like go out like properly, you know? Well, I feel like at that time frame, and I know we kind of glossed over it, but so – for people listening who are not dyed in the paint and don't know every single move of the band, you know, Tanger fight was pretty well known in the East coast. And as he said, hardcore shows were at a different level then. I mean, there were the earth crisis and the man balls and the marauders. You guys might've played a couple of shows of them. Yeah. But Tanger fight was playing in Philadelphia, a place like the Stalag 13. In fact, the last time that I saw you before you guys broke up in the city was with reach the sky at Stalag okay. 13. And, um, and I, I remember because uh, Wes was a roadie there. We were, yep. mosh, you know, like, and, you know, here's a here's a band that you could go. And I was traveling all over the East Coast at that time, even out to the Midwest. There was 10 yard fight shirts all over the place, but it wasn't a moneymaker. And you guys had actually signed to EBR, which was uh, Steve Reddy's project. And, you know, that's a pretty big deal. And um, the presentation, were- the presentation of the of the band was like this band is going to be fucking bigger than Madball, but at the same time is I think that you put a lot of pressure on a band to perform, and I know that there is almost a tension that comes from as you said like there was other aspirations you guys wanted to do, so I'm 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 actually glad to hear it from your side because it's one of those weird things that bands do. It's like everything falls in line, so you can guys can be on a good label and tour but your heart has other ideas as well. And, yeah. And you know, it's, it's not that I don't want to say our hearts weren't in it. And, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. What I was saying is you had other things that you'd right. also like to do. So doing a full-time band would have kept you from that whole doing things professionally elsewhere. So that's what I was getting at. I didn't, I didn't never yes. saying that right. I was never saying that you weren't into it. Cause no, no, that's, I, that's I, the opposite. You guys I, were on stage. It was balls to the wall. And that was actually one of the things that was cool. It's like, you saw a ten yard fight. You didn't see someone staring at the back of their like you know. You never saw the back of somebody unless they were tuning. You guys were we all tr- out. We tried that, not that- to. I'll say I had a, a show here or there on some long tours where the crowd wasn't great. Where I, I probably didn't give as much as I should have. But that was that was a thing where we were we were we said like if we're gonna do this, we have to go out there. It doesn't matter how many kids are out there. We have to go off 
every night is just as much for, for three kids as we would for like 300 kids, you know? So, um, and yeah, it was like towards the end, I, you know, I can't speak for anyone else, but like, I mean, my heart was definitely still in it. I definitely still believed in it, but I, but I had this, I, I think I'll be honest with you now that I'm thinking about it. I think a couple months beforehand, I had tried to actually quit because I wanted to go to California and they talked me into saying, and I wasn't the one who was like, let's end it. I don't think when, when it actually happened, but as soon as someone else said it, I jumped on because I felt like I, I, I didn't want to resent the band for not being able to do things, you know, other things that I wanted to do, you know, that was the last thing I wanted. So, and I don't think I was the only one feeling that way. Um, it's one of those things where like, you can kind of sense it, but you don't, no one really wants to come out and say it, you know? And we had, we had this like really good tour planned. So I think we're all kind of like probably saying to ourselves, let's hang on and see how this tour goes. And then we just sort of imploded just because we didn't want to deal with carrying our amps up and down stairs. It's like, all right, this is ridiculous. Like, like it's funny because, um, we did way more than we ever thought we could do like more than we ever dreamed we could do. You know, like, and, and, and I'm sure other bands would have looked at it and been like, why would you throw that away? I mean, I remember playing, I remember coming back from you um, or no loading out to go to Europe, putting our equipment in the freight elevator and seeing like on the way out was another band. Cause our, we, we had this, this big like mill building was a big practice space, build. all these different uh, practice space, all these different bands practice in this building. And a lot of them were just kind of like local bar bands. They never left. They never went up you know, like to the next town. You know, they would just play covers in, in bars. And so these, these guys in the practice space next to us would hear us playing to them, which sa- probably sounded like absolute crap. And they're in there playing this intricate, you know, like crazy, like math rock stuff or like, like, like real musicians, you know? And they asked us, oh, where are you guys going? Or actually, I think we asked them. And then they told us, you know, it was like coming back from like a bar down the road. And then they asked us where we're going. And we're just kind of like, just kind of felt bad. Just kind of looking down at her. She was like, uh, we're going to Europe. And they're like, what? You know, like they had no idea, like no concept that you could actually do that. And they were just like asking us all these questions. And it just kind of goes back to like, I don't know. It's, it's what's so cool about hardcore that you can. You don't just sit, you don't need to sit around and wait for permission. These guys were waiting for permission. They're waiting for some like some rep to come in and just sign them. They thought they were going to just you know be discovered, which I don't know, man. That doesn't happen too often. Now you were about to discuss. I answered your question, but <laughs> no, no, you absolutely answered it. Now you were discussing before we kind of went off onto that thing, and uh, so you were setting up what we would know to be now the beginning of Edge Day, without knowing it. And without, can't really take credit. Honestly, I got to give that credit to Sweet Pete because he's the one who, who came out and said it. And if he hadn't actually said that on the microphone, you know, he kind of gave, by giving a name to it, it made it like something uh, to try and replicate, I guess. Because <clears throat> if it was just like, oh, 10 year fights last show, they're not going to do 10 year fights last show a year later. You know what I mean? No, nah, in fact, 
I got lucky enough to go up to 10 yard fights last show as edge day. I was not straight edge at the time. It's interesting that we were talking about the show that I said in Philadelphia at the time at the show that you guys played, we were drinking these little Mickey's grenades and hanging out with crazy Bob who would eventually go from being a Regis guy into Bane. Yeah. But my friend group was, uh, I like, like I said, I had like small groups, big groups, the guys, well, one who was a former roommate of mine, we would hang out and drink and get into trouble. He actually, we go to edge day in October. He kills himself that December. Holy shit. In December 3rd. And from that time, that drive home, when we drove home from Boston, thinking about it, it was like, I felt like I was being disingenuous because I was drinking for a lot of dumb reasons, but it wasn't where I was most happy. And I, and that show and seeing so many people just happy, not drinking was like, holy fuck. Like there's so many fucking people that could just not do this, you know? Right. And I, I said this to both Ben and I said this to John, when we were talking about doing the 10 yard fight reunion. Like, there's a huge aspect where had I not gone to edge day, I would have not have gone and become straight edge less than two months later. Well, that's cool, that man. was insanely impactful to be in a room where people were like way out and about like fucking like, not that if you're not straight edge, I'll kill you, but people very psyched for both you guys and four punch. And that was like, that was like a moment where like, okay, I, there's so many people that are fucking that are like this and have this feeling I'm fucking good. And I just wanted to tell you that that was a, a very impactful moment for hardcore. And obviously, as someone who's booked two Edge Days here and looks forward to any time there's Edge Day shows every year, that the impact is still felt. You know, whether or not you guys planned it or not, you guys had a huge impact just by doing it and giving us, give everybody that day. Yeah, thank you. I mean, yeah, it's crazy that the people still talk about that. And I mean, I think a lot of people have no idea, may not even know where it comes from, but um, you know, I see just random people that I don't will will post about it or ask about it sometimes on Facebook that I that I don't even know that it, I didn't even realize that they were into hardcore. Because at this point, like maybe twenty one people years. I know from other places that like and they don't even realize that um sorry, I gotta um, they don't even realize that um, I was in this band. Like sometimes, my, like my my wife will 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 talk to people she wor- works with, and somehow or another, it'll come around, and uh, they'll be like, "You mean wait, ten yard fight? Like that's your husband?" And it's the weirdest <laughs> thing because, like, you know, we're not some huge band. Like the fact that anyone remembers us, like that would that it, it just shocks me. You know, it's it's. And, and, and I got to thank you for letting us play that. This is hardcore a couple, couple of years ago. We really had no idea what to expect, but. Uh, no, it was, it was, really it was everything. Time. It was everything that I wanted it to be. And, uh, but like with, with you guys and edge day, it was just the spark that you guys had kind of walked into with you guys in floor punch. And it was meant to be that way. And um, one of the last things we'll really talk about with tender fight for a bit is the following year. I go to um, Massachusetts for the second edge day, edge day 2000. And we have to sit down (laughs) so cold (laughs) red line. And at the time, like now I'm straight edge for uh, almost a year. All my friends jumped in the punishment van. We went up there and some of the dudes weren't straight edge. We're going to fucking go up there. And we froze our asses off 
and we get in line. We're so psyched. And uh, we sit down and we get to see the 10 yard, like this like 10 yard fight thing. And we're like, holy fucking shit, man. Like it was psyched. It was awesome to go up there. It was awesome to see that. And that's actually Bane had been planned, but that was the first time. And I say, and I said this in their, uh, in their documentary. Yeah. That, that Bane set was the first time I seen people really go fucking crazy for Bane. And that was the first time, like I got it. Like, Oh shit. Like I'd seen them play the lockdown our way and I didn't see that reaction. And obviously you guys got up there and did some songs and then the finale with uh sweet Pete. It was, it was another epic night. And uh, again, it was cool to see tenure fight kind of ushering in the second edge day, just by that's the way it started off with your video. And I yeah. think we handed popcorn and shit. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I, I don't remember the popcorn, but I do remember, I'll be honest with you, like to hear you talk about it that way makes me feel a little bit better, but I always felt like, like we had really good intentions by to premiere that thing. Um, and I don't, you know, I just feel like in hindsight, it might not have been the best idea to make all these kids sit and, and patiently and watch an hour long video when they're all they want to do is kill each other and like dance and like sing along. Um, like we built up this thing and now we just have to sit and watch. Like it seemed like it might've been the wrong place to try and like screen something, you know, but yeah, that was, that was like my first um, real attempt at making something. And that's what, that's what I would like to get into. Why don't we go through the process from the time when you guys stop or was that video in process before yeah. you guys decided like how, how that, cause I know you had a big hand in that. Walk us through that video and the whole thing, please. Right. So I had to back up a little bit. So like sure, sure. probably after I decided that I was done with school, right. I'm doing, we're doing, we go to Europe. I come back. Um, I had to get some kind of job. So like I started doing temp work and I and like, just do like, you know, like data entry. Uh, uh, I think it was delivering pizza. I was doing all kinds of different stuff, but every day, like it, if I had a, like an office gig, like some days I, I'm sure, you know, how temp, you know, temp work, you know, they call you in the morning and sometimes you get, it's for the day. Sometimes it's for two weeks. And a lot of times like the stuff they had me do, you know, I get through it and then I just sit there and be playing, like playing solitaire or something. So I start looking online for, for like actual jobs and I would just search anything to do with video production, like anything. And it was like, I'd see maybe one thing like every two weeks or something and I'd apply to anything that had anything to do with, with video. And, and, um, eventually I got a, a reply and went and interviewed at this place and it was doing like technical support on these video editing systems. At the time it was, uh, media 100 was the, the system. And these things were like, they probably started at this point at like $50,000 just to install one of these things. So, so, and this was like similar to the system that I was trying to get on in college, but couldn't get on. So to me, it's like, if I could get this job, I get access to this equipment, you know, like this is, this is my kind of like in, in sideways foot in the door. Um, but actually even before that, the way I got the job was I, I took a credit card and I went to the computer store and, um, maxed out a credit card and got a computer. This is the first real computer I owned. And I just started like messing around and trying to teach myself stuff because I really didn't know anything. Like I went into the tech support job and I just, I, 
you know, people say fake it till you make it. Um, nowadays, I think, I think it's that term is thought of as like, you know, pretending that you've already made it before you have. But for me, fake it till you make it was like, just pretend you know what you're doing, get in there, and figure it out. You know? So that's, that's what I did. I was like, I, I, I somehow tricked them into thinking I knew what I was doing when I really didn't. I got in there, I kept my mouth shut and the guy that was training me was really good. And I just listened and like followed along. And somehow I, I figured out how to do this stuff. And within a couple months he quit. And then the guy that was my boss, all of a sudden I had his position. So I had free reign to, to use his gear whenever I wanted. So I taught myself how to edit. Um, and so that was like 98 into 99. So after when we were, we were going, we set up the show and like somewhere along the line and it wasn't that it, it wasn't from the get go. It was probably only like maybe a week ahead of time. We we're like, we should make a video out of this. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, I was like, well, how are we going to do this? I'm playing the show. I can't really film it. So I called a bunch of people I knew. Um, and then we found a couple kids as they were coming in the door that were like, Hey, we're not letting people bring video cameras in. Um, if you want to come in and film, you can, but you have to give us the tape to use. And when we're done with it, we'll send it back to you. So a couple kids did that, which was kind of a, seems like sort of a dick move to do. But in hindsight, it was like, I don't even know why we were so adamant about it. Cause it's not like someone's going to go and post it on YouTube, but we just were like, we want to control this and, and show it the way we want it to be seen. Um, I guess that was the idea behind that. But so it was like footage from three or four different cameras. Some of it was only like halfway, like in and out of songs. It was like all different. The color, none of the colors match. That's why it's in black and white. Cause I couldn't figure out how to, how to make the colors match. Um, and then we had uh, uh, Dean from 454 Big Block and Matt Henderson do the record the audio, so that we had this awesome audio recording. And then we had the the this video footage, um, and then I had access to equipment. Which what I ended <laughs> I don't know if I should admit to this, but what I ended up doing, um, because I was pretty much running the show where I was working was as we would fix equipment, there would be, you know, parts would come in broken. So we would have all these spare parts laying around. And I, I was looking through the box. I'm like, I think I got enough to make a full system. So like I took some of the stuff home and put it in my computer. And like, next thing I knew I had a hundred thousand dollar editing system in my apartment. It's like, okay. So that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that's how I got that going. And, and, and that's how I edited the video. And, and it was a, definitely a learning process. I look at it now and I cringe because there's like every edit is a, is a dissolve. It's like, I don't even know what I was thinking with that. Like I would never edit like that now. Um, but the fact is it sounds good and it looks pretty decent because at the time, like Strife had put out a, a home video. Um, but like for a hardcore band, no one had really done something like that i know that we were like oh we got to step up the game with this and that's what we tried to do i think we did at least temp like very briefly but uh, there weren't a lot of bands doing that because the equipment was so expensive you know you i think strife had to hire people or maybe one of the guys in strife um 
actually worked at a production company and that's how they got it done. I can't remember, but it wasn't like now, you know? Yeah. Obviously where you just produce something and boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Right. I remember that the VHS was like on blue VHS or something like that. Yeah. There was a, um, we did a couple runs, but there was definitely a blue and a white. I think yeah, I didn't see the like white. hundred white or something. I think we have, I think I still own one of the, I have a crazy amount of crates and shit with like saved stuff like that. And I think I got that, but that was like, and it was exactly what you said. There wasn't a lot out there. So if you had a chance to purchase something that was a VHS, which was like, it was before the time of DVD. So it was like, holy shit, this is like a professional VHS. And I, and um, I know you probably sat there for hours with your friends watching old show VHSs. Yeah. So this was like, holy shit, look at this. They got a printing on the cut. Like you guys had the whole deal. It was actually awesome, man. Like I know where you're like, oh, it's like you 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 look at it from a professional look back now, but like to get one of those was cool. And to have that was pretty awesome. Well, that was just it. We were I, we were lucky enough that well, I mean LaCroix did that layout. We had the the photos, I mean it's probably Justine, uh Todd, like you know, the you run down the list. Yeah. Like the, the photographers like all contributed to that. I think um, we just had friends. We always had friends that were doing cool, creative shit that could help us with it. I, I mean, Chris Wren offered to put it out at the time. I didn't know Chris very well. And, but you know, Tim vouched for him and he had done a couple things. He hadn't done American nightmare yet. And it was just like, well, EVR is not jumping down our back to do this thing. Um, and we didn't know how to go about doing it ourselves, really. So we're like, okay, let's go with Chris. He seems he wants to do it. He seems like he can do it, you know. So that's why we went with Chris and Bridge Nine. Um, but yeah, I mean, just going back to it, it's like a lot of times, like pro, you know, projects, especially back then, it, it, something seems overwhelming. It's like, well, we can't do that. So, you know, you have to have a lot of money to do that. But if you have enough people that know. Like, well, he knows this part of it and he knows this part of it. And this other guy over there, I know knows how to do this. And you, you put your heads together and you, you can do stuff that it's crazy. I mean, look at what Sonny's doing with, with hate five, six and all, all that stuff. That's, you know, not to change the subject, but like, I mean, that's a perfect, I mean, in, in one sense, he's doing most of that on his own. But he's also got people helping him out, you know, here and there. So it's a lot of collaboration. I mean, between you and then other people he's got filming. And um, I think he would, he would, he would be one of the first to say like, you know, if, if you, if you have an idea and you don't know how to do it, you go and ask someone. And if, if you can't find someone that can tell you, look it up and you just keep experimenting and and figuring it out. And sooner or later, you're going to get there, you know? No, that's a returning theme on pretty much almost every single episode we've done so far, where there's always an open source, someone who can show someone else the way when they get a little lost. And I find that one of the beauties of our community and culture is not only the DIY aspect, but that people are so willing to jump in and lend a hand and just get someone further down the road. And it's like from when we needed the help to now where I'm in a different position where I'm trying to help other people continue on it's exciting when someone has an idea and you get the opportunity to kind of like push them further down the road with, Hey, well, I don't know this, but talk to this guy. I'm, 
I know a lot of people that know how to get shit done. And that's how I've gotten so much shit done. Right. So I'm always going to be open to the idea that if someone asks me, it could be anybody. I say, Hey, yeah, this is how this happens. Or here's the guy you really want to talk to. If you want to learn how to do it. So I think it's fantastic that you were able to do all that to make that tape happen. Right. Um, And and even going back, I mean, look at like, I never would have thought we could get like a, like a professional auto audio recording out of that. But like, Dean, Dean you and know? Matt, Dean, Matt. Like, like, Dean, Dean, Dean has had his hand up. in so many good records, and obviously Matt Henderson is a fucking legend. Well, so right. like, yeah, you really couldn't have hit it, hit hit it out of park even more with all that, you know. I, and and coming full circle, like when, uh, uh, well, you know, later on when when I went to work uh, with uh, Ian McFarland, we did this an agnostic front, sorry, agnostic front live at CBGB's DVD. Who did the audio? Dean and Maddie. So like, it, it it's just a it's just a crazy you know thing where within hard like forget even about BMX and skateboarding, but within hardcore, there's so many people that know how to do so many things. There's there's, there's really nothing you can't do, like if if you look and just talk to enough people because someone knows how to do it and. And there's going to be someone that that's going to want to help you figure out how to get that thing done. Like you said, like it's more in hardcore than anything else. I would say like, like skateboarding BMX great, but like the most help, like I, I think always comes from the hardcore scene. No, I would agree. I feel like our culture is just ingrained to help. Even if it doesn't directly fall on our laps, the benefit of it, because we all know it, it, it feeds the culture. You know, it's like, yes. a, it's like, a, it's like, a, it's like the wheel on the mill, the water that keeps it spinning, everything keeps going. So where, at what point between this video and do you get to California? So let's see. I was working on that video. I was working on two things that summer. So, okay. We, that show happened in October 10, 1799. Um, at the same time I had started with a, with a friend and a friend of mine, um, working on trying to make a, a BMX video magazine. Uh, cause there was people that, that, that made, there, there's this, uh, video magazine and BMX called props. And then there was four one one video magazine, which was skateboarding. And our idea was to try to kind of like, they were definitely different styles. And I always, I loved props, but I really loved four one one. Like I leaned a little bit more towards their style, and um, as far as like the editing and everything went. So, and, and so, and my friend Sean that I was working on with, you know, like we pretty much were in agreement. Like let's make something that's kind of similar, but it's <laughs> but I my idea was this to make it a little different, so we're not trying to directly compete with props because they were the the shit as far as. BMX video magazines go, they were the only thing really going and like they were huge. So it's like, well, let's do this. Let's not put it on VHS. Let's put it on CD ROM. I don't know if you remember CD ROM. Yeah. If the kids out there know what the hell that is, but before inter- the internet and YouTube, cause like back in 99 to put a video on the internet was like near impossible. So we wanted to get it out there digitally. 
So, so I spent a couple months taking classes and learning how to make CD-ROMs because I didn't know how to do this, but I was like, well, we can figure it out. Um, so we, we were editing this and I was learning how to make this like CD-ROM and we got that, I got that done. And then, and I got the 10 yard fight video done and delivered to Chris Ren pretty much both the same week, like like maybe a week before me and LaCroix packed up the car and drove out West. Like it was like down to the wire. Um, and then I got a couple, like, because I learned how to make CD ROMs, like who the hell in the hardcore scene knows how to make CD ROMs. I got a couple of gigs from big wheel and a couple, couple gigs from uh bridge nine doing that, helping them out with that stuff. So it, it, I think I might've done, I can't remember what it, I, and maybe there was a, there was a piebald CD that had something on it that I helped with. And then, excuse me, I can't remember what I did for Bridge Nine, but I did something for them. But um, it, it just, it goes back to like, you know, just fuck it, just figure it out, you know? So what, but um, I know you were doing that and you were getting involved, I would say at the grassroots of trying to do your own thing. Right. Just emulating people. And did you, was it, was it well received? How did, was it within the BMX community? So we got, here's, so here's what happened. We got out to California. I really, we released, um, the first issue was on CD. In the meantime, in the meantime, I had also um, been able to teach myself how to make DVDs. So when we got out, to, me and John got out to California, I, he had a job lined up. He was like the art director at a hip hop magazine or something. And then um, I supposedly had a job lined up doing tech support in a video production, like a place that sold video production um, equipment called Promax. When I got out there, the guy was like, oh, uh, I kind of gave you a job to someone else. Sorry, man. So I had like, you know, I might have had like $2,000 in the bank and that was it. So I ended up really tr- scrambling. I think I delivered pizza for a couple months. And then one day me and John were driving down the street and we saw this building that had the four, the big uh, 411 VM logo on the side of it. We're in, uh, where are we? Hunt, Hunt, Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, maybe California. <laughs> Nope, sorry, Costa Mesa, California. So this is where the building was. So we like we're, we're driving on the street and we see this big four one one VM logo. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like that's just on the side of the building. Well, <clears throat> so we stop, and um, I didn't go in that day, but I, I took note of where it was, and I went back like the next day with a resume, and I just went in. I was like, hey, uh, I don't know who I need to talk to, but here's my resume. I know how to make DVDs because this was at the time where like like movies and things were going, were like just transitioning to DVD and to make a DVD was like, it was, again, it was like, like the video editing software was a couple of years beforehand. It was really expensive. Um, so not anyone could just make a DVD. And at the same time, like when I went and talked to them, I, I, I found out that the, the equipment they were using to edit all their videos was the same equipment that I did tech support for. And they were paying a lot of money for tech support every month. So they brought me in. I told them I knew how to make DVDs. They were like, holy shit, we're trying to figure this out now. You know how to do tech support. You know how to make DVDs. 
when do you want to start? And it was like, I just walked in off the street without knowing anyone, no help, no contacts. And it was like, just, you know, I know how to do the shit. And I, and I landed almost like a, like what was basically a dream job or at least a foot in the door. So to make, so, so to, so what ended up happening was we released the, it was called 650 BMX. That was a uh, CD-ROM. And the reason it was called 650 was because you could fit 650, 650 megabytes on a CD. So we're like, oh, let's just go with that, you know, as opposed to gigs. So after about a month or so of being there, I like, you know, um, I asked my boss, I'm like, hey, I'm working on this BMX video magazine. Do you mind if I use the equipment after hours so I can make a DVD? And it's like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. And so I got, when I got that done, I was like, Hey, I've got a master for this. Like, like I, I was talking to him. I was like, I got this thing mastered. Um, I would really like to get it made. You know, what good replicator He's like, yeah, let me, let me take it. I'll send it to my guy. Right. The next day he's like, actually we're thinking about doing our own like four one one BMX version of this. Would you be interested in doing it? And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Can you uh can you give us a frame of reference to like what that company was to BMX at the time? Just so, so people to, listening or not and it is that? Yeah, so 411 video magazine, 411 VM for skateboarding, it was the thing. Like I think they started in they started in 93. At the time, skateboarding videos came out like like a company would release a video maybe once a year, every cup like, you know, not twice a year, maybe once a year, every 18 months. So like a good skate video would come out. If you were lucky, like you'd get a couple a year. 411 came out and they were releasing a video every two months. And it was like, it was good. It, Cause they would go all over the place. They would cover contests. They would do profiles on pros. It wasn't brand specific. So they like they would just get all the best stuff. And then they had people that would film for them all over the country and send them footage. So like they just had it covered before the internet, like 411 for skateboarding, like they stepped it up. After they came around, um the, the skate companies had to start had to step it up. They had to produce more video. All I mean, in in a way they made things like way harder on professional on, on pro skaters, like they had to really start filming all the time in order to get footage, you know, and it, cause that's how they were making money. So four one was four one one was the thing. They pretty much set the standard props was, um, they, I, they started real close to when four one one did, but I'm pretty sure they were behind four one one and they were the BMX version of four one one, but a little different. Like they had definitely had their own style, and, um, you know, they had their own, their own spin on things. Like I always really liked 401's style better, I guess. Um, so for me, like I, you know, I literally had like daydreams like, Oh, like maybe I'll get, maybe I could get hired to do what I'm doing for 411. Maybe they'll, they're going to see what I'm doing and like offer me the chance to do it like knowing that like for me to get this off the ground on my own would be really hard but to have them behind me it would make it way easier and so like like that was kind of in the back of my head like a daydream but not like something that i ever thought would actually happen so when he offered me the opportunity it was like fuck yeah like let's do this um 
And then, you know, I don't know what the question was, but no, that's no, how no. I got going with that. It was just a frame of reference. So that way you can go into them saying, we'd like to put it out. Right. So, so it wasn't even, the thing is it like, I'll be honest with you. Like I found out years later that I don't think they ever even looked at what I did. I think they just knew this guy, like this guy came in here off the street. Like he's, he's got some motivation. He's got some drive. He knows BMX. He knows how to, he knows how to get things done. Whether or not I really did or not is questionable, but, um, and they didn't have a lot of contacts in the BMX world. So they were like, let's, let's give this kid a shot, you know? And as luck would have it, like a, it's literally a week before I was um, at the van skate park in Orange, California, riding my bike. And I ran into Greg Walsh, who's also in Don't Stand in Line, who was a big hardcore dude. He, was, he used to sing for, um, shit. What was the name of it? <laughs> it's a Slapshot song. Moment of Truth. He used to. I'm, I'm almost positive. It's Moment of Truth. He's going to kill me if I get this wrong. But, um, and they were from Rochester, New York. So he knew of me. I, I mean, I knew of him, but I didn't really know him. And he stops me. He's like, "Hey, did you used to sing for Ten Year Fight?" And I'm like, you know, I was like, yeah, like not having any. You know, like I'm in California, like. Who the hell? I'm thinking no one here knows who I am. So I'm just riding my, by myself. And and then, um, you know, he was there with Robbie Morales, who I don't know if you know anything about BMX, but he started a company called Fit. And then he left there to start this company, Cult, who has gone on. The Cult is like huge at this point. Um, he's just a longtime BMX pro, like really well respected. And a guy that I used to watch. In, you know, I used to watch both these guys in, in the props videos and just like, you know, looked up to them and they're talking to me and impressed because I was in 10 yard fight. Like to me, that was funny. Um, so we became friends and we, we, we would talk. And then, so that was like, and then I also knew, um, I knew, I knew, uh, uh another uh, guy from New England, New England, Jared Sony, who'd actually had moved out there and was working at Ride BMX um, Print Magazine. So I had those contacts. So when Josh called me, the first thing I did was call those guys and be like, hey, I just got this opportunity. <laughs> I need you guys to help me because I really didn't know any, I didn't really have any other connections, like as far as like professional, you know, like pro BMX riders, you know? So they helped me out tremendously. So bringing it back around like that's how i met greg but like it's real weird that we had never met before that since we're both into bmx and hardcore and came from you know not that far apart you know now rolling into this this is like you you this is what you were thinking about in in a dream state versus i know you were excited about doing tenure fight so it's it's great that you broke away and got this opportunity because as you stayed doing tenure and fight, you never would have reaped any of this, man. It's awesome to hear that. It just kind of worked out that way, man. It's great. Dude, dude, it's a weird thing. And and I feel weird saying it. Like, I don't know, you know, that movie, the secret. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, I don't really go in for that, but there's, there's definitely, there's gotta be, there's a little something to positive thinking. Like at some point you got to get off your ass and do it. You can't just think it, but like, like I thought about singing for a band for so long. Like I had, I went through it like in my head so many times and like, like literally fantasized about it. 
And then, it, and then it just sort of, it came out of nowhere and all of a sudden happened. And then I almost had the same exact thing happen with this 411 opportunity. Um, and it's like, I don't buy that, that shit where, you know, you just, you know, think it and hope for it. And it's going to happen. But, but it's kind of like, a, you know, you, you make your own luck, luck type of thing where like you got to prepare and be ready. And so when that opportunity comes or even a hint of it comes along, someone else, someone's going to recognize that and, and they're going to offer it to you. Um, and if they don't offer it, offer it to you, at least you'll see it and try to go get it. If that makes any sense. Like, like luck is like, I don't really believe in luck other than being in the right place at the right time and being prepared for it. If that makes sense. No, it makes sense. I feel that we can manifest a positive outcome if we are not only focused on it, but we are doing the small, maybe sometimes inconsequential things, but the small little things to work up towards the big day. Mm. Like if you sit on your ass and you say, I really want to do this, but every single day you're saying it, but there's no active movement towards it. It's not going to happen. Right. You can't. I know they say, well, you have to speak it to an existence. Yeah. The other part of it is you got to actively work towards it. And so, although, you know, looking looking at your what you were doing in college kind of gave you some insight and then you said about the temp work like these are all baby steps towards what would end up and obviously your background of your you know childhood and teens pursuit of bmxing and and skateboarding these are all things that quantify back into and then later obviously being recognized in tenure fight these are all these little things that you don't realize become the prerequisite but they have in hindsight you know, like, and I'm, and I, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with your idea. I feel that people sometimes have a rigorous idea that, well, I go to college and then I, I get the degree, and then I get hired on the job I'm supposed to have. Where it's like, no, sometimes you do, and you said, as you make your own luck. And, yeah, I mean, the, the college thing, man. For the longest time, it, it was, it was, it was. It was the thing where, like, I felt like they told you, you do this, you do this, you do this. You know, you, you go to school, you get good grades, you go to college, you get out, you get a good job. It's it's a lock. You just do these steps and you get it. And that's not that's not how it works. It's just not how it works at all. And even if, even if it does work that way, it doesn't mean you're going to be happy with it. So, you know, I, I just feel like I'm not, you know, I'm not here to say fuck college, but I kind of am. Like in in the sense that it's, it's not what, it's not the bill of goods that a lot of people want to make it out to be, you know, like I think for certain things, it's definitely necessary, but a lot of other things, like I can't even think of an inst- instance in the last 10 years where anyone asked me about where I went to college or, you know, what I, you know, other than something like this, like no one cares. No one cares about what I did. I, I know if you're going to be a doctor, that's a different story. But like, yeah, if you're going to if you're going to do open heart surgery, you got to hit college. But I think, right. um, as is proven with a lot of the guests that I've had on the show, varying degrees of success have come from the background that came from starting at college. I mean, I mean, but obviously, as you know, with Sonny Singh specifically, he's a computer scientist, yeah. but yet he managed to find his passion through this art of videography and the widespread distribution online of what is hardcore punk. 
Right. And, and I've had quite a few guests for varying reasons, very similar to your own, started with college and didn't really get a bite into what they wanted out of it and went a different path. And uh, I, I find that, you know, everybody has to find the path that they're on. But honestly, once they realize that college ain't in it, they have to have the strength to say, you know what, I'm not I'm not really feeling this and I got to go off the path of what they say because there is no linear move, you know, like um, we have we have a guest on here who went to school two separate times for what he thought was supposed to help him out. And he's like, I- I'm never going to fucking learn with this. This is not how it's going to work. And he's one of the most successful booking agents in, in, in metal and hardcore. Right. And, and it's like, um, you look at what he did. And if you were to, sh- if you were to take it in front of people like parents and people who are like locked into the fantasy of what college life gives you, and you say, this is the success this man has. This is what he's done. Nine out of 10, like, well, he must have gone to college to learn this. And it's like, no, right. that's, not how the, that's not how the world it, works. It's it, experiences it, and it's in its experience. It's the influence of these, what we would see as passions, but people would see as like, just, oh, it's just a hobby. But like, no, had you not been in 10 yard fight, had you not been excited about BMX, where would you be? Right. You know, like and these I, are the things that drive passions will become careers at times. I th- I think the thing about college is like, like I, got, I sound anti-college, but I think what it is, it's it. they sell it as like, it's a lock to success and it's not, you know, it's not, I mean, like we said, in some careers it's definitely necessary, but in other careers, like it could be helpful. It could be a tool. It could be a step in the process, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And with how expensive it's getting, a lot of time, it's really just a detriment. I mean, you start off so far in the hole that it's it's really not worthwhile, I think, for most people at this point. Um, I mean, that's a that's a huge for me personally. That's a huge as a tradesperson. If you're not qualified or you're not getting yourself something qualified that is guaranteed, you're going to immediately give you some form of. Decent pay job. There's a thousand other ways to walk in the door. Um, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to get bogged down too much in this topic, but I did want to say that it's interesting to see that, that you have this success and it is manifestation and it is just the, the positive, like, Hey, it takes a lot to leave new England and go to California. It takes a lot to do these little things. And like you said, you know, like, a person at every step of the way during your journey may have turned around. Like I didn't come here to deliver pizza. Fuck it. I'm going home. You know, I, there's a thousand ways you could have turned the other way. So I do feel that there's a physical manifestation when you, cause you had a drive in you. So you're, you're working for, are you still working for four one one or do you start working at fit at this time? So I was working for four one one and what happened with, uh, with fit was so, so I was, Robbie actually, Robbie Morales came on to be kind of. Let me back up for a second. So, like four and one, the skate version always had Lance Mountain as the host. Like he would come on and like intro the episodes, um, and he would be the guy that would you know he would go run he would run down like the table of contents and stuff, and then he'd do like an outro. So <clears throat> when we did the BMX version, I was like, well, we need someone to do that. So I got Robbie Morales to do that, who was one of the owners of Fit fit uh fit bike company and was also owned by snm bike company so that's how i got in with robbie and 
we basically partnered with them to put out their first full length video. Fit was only like maybe a year old at this point. Um, and they had a ridiculously good team. Uh, so we did their first team video. Um, and then at the same time, you know, you know, that helped with a, helped us with a little bit of credibility in the BMX world. Cause BMX world is kind of like, they look at anyone from the outside, like as like poachers, you know what I mean? Like they just looked at, you know, they looked at four on one probably the entire time that we were doing it is like trying to poach something off BMX, which was definitely not the case. Like I was fully into BMX, like everyone involved was, they were just giving us the funds to make it happen. And honestly, um, it was pretty short lived cause it, it didn't financially, they were putting way more in than they were getting out of it. Um, so it's kind of funny that we were, they were always just thought of as like poaching off the BMX scene, but that's how I got on with it. Um, and I think we did maybe, we did that. We went to Barcelona. We did a, a Barcelona video with Fit, uh, and then I think there was there was five issues of four one one BMX, um, and then after that ended, you know, I was kind of like in the in in the the tail year that I was at four one one, that last year I basically got laid off. But like in that last year, I had started stand and fight which started as impact and then turned into stand and fight um so i was doing that we did a couple tours and then honestly four and one ended i didn't know what i was doing i was just feeling kind of homesick and just honestly kind of depressed and i just wanted to the plan for me was to just go back to to massachusetts for a bit and just so i could feel like like just like a break from just being out and trying to like figure this shit out. And just like, I needed, I needed a break, you know, cause I felt like mentally I was just like not in a good place and I needed a support system. Um, and I ended up coming back and met my wife and ended up staying. But after I got back here, I hooked up with Ian McFarland who <clears throat> from blood for blood, I think if you guys, probably on who i'm talking about he's definitely going to be a future guest i hit him up i actually emailed him in my first run of like let's see if anyone would even be on a podcast yeah and i love ian so much he wrote me immediately like yes i'd fucking love to be on yeah he's he's a he's a great dude so what happened there was there's so many fucking things that overlap like after i left 411 i decided i'm gonna start my own thing i was gonna i started a a hardcore video magazine called under pressure and i did i ended up doing two issues of it but it took quite a while um so i was still living in california and i came back east and i interviewed the project deck project x guys went down to new york um and i interviewed a bunch of people for that i interviewed american nightmare because on the original incarnation of this idea it was going to be project x in American Nightmare, that was going to be the that first issue. Um, somewhere along the way, it got oh, so it got shelved because I was I hated how the footage looked. Like I shot I shot the same. It was my first real attempt to trying to shoot interviews and do audio, and I sounded terrible, and it looked terrible as far as I was concerned. Um, but what ha- So when I as I was working on it. It, you know, being almost 30 years old, back up in my old bedroom at my parents' house, feeling like a loser. I was talking to um, 
I think I, what happened was I emailed Chris Wren about some, we're talking about something. Well, Castan and fight was on bridge nine. So we're talking about something and he was like, you should just come here and work. I'm like, dude, I've got no money. He's like, it doesn't matter. Just come here. We'll give you a spot. You can work out of here. We'll give you a free space. Like, I like what you're doing. Totally supportive. One of the best dudes I've ever met. So like I did that for a while and I would have loved to stay there. Cause it was like, it was bridge nine. It was Death Wish. Matt Pike was in the office. I don't know, there's someone else. Someone. There was just a lot of cool stuff going on. It was. It was a really good place to be, and it was motivating. Um, the problem was, it was it took me about an hour drive each way, and it was like in the middle of the winter. So I was just like, at some point, I was. I, I just stopped going, and just like I was like, I'm not going, and I'm not getting anything done. So I ended up moving back. Just in and and working out of my house for a little bit, but in the meantime, Chris had hooked me up with Ian. He's like, "You guys got to get together," because Ian was doing some stuff for Bridge Nine. He's like, "You guys got to get together and do something." So, I, and stop me if I'm going too fast or if I'm no, no, no. You're going great. I just I was wondering when you bring because you had touched on earlier. You said you eventually finished your degree. Yeah, I, that happened during this time too. So, okay, okay, okay. So yeah, okay, we're all <laughs> so like this was a crazy couple of years. Um, I hooked up with Ian and we started doing like some just like music videos. We did one for this band Kanai, we did one for All That Remains. Um, we did this thing for Slapshot, and it was actually I think for I think it was Thorpe Records. Like we did like a going back to the CD ROM thing because I knew how to do CD ROMs. Yeah, it was for the uh, those. It was it was for the 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 tear it down. Yes, for tear it down. We did like a a making like behind the scenes like making of whatever on tear it down, um, which is how we got talking to those guys about doing a full length. This was under Kill Switch Productions. Is that the name of the exactly? Yeah, Kill Switch Productions. Um, so that was me and Ian. And then, yeah, I had, I had shelved under pressure. So that was just sort of like in the back of my mind, I had this footage, like, wasn't sure if I was going to do anything with it. I was focusing on kill switch at the same time I was going back to school. And at the same time we were both like, we weren't making any money with kill switch. So like I had a, I think I had a little bit of unemployment at the beginning, but that ran out. So it was like, we were, I was delivering pizza. I was doing whatever side hustle jobs I could could do i was going to school um and we were trying to do kill switch and i had a uh girlfriend that it was like a new relationship so it was like a fucking crazy crazy time um but you know somehow during kill switch we hooked up with um ian was friends with i think ken casey from the dropkick murphys yes and this was like i don't know if you remember well i know you remember but i don't know if listeners might remember but 2004 is the year the Red Sox broke the curse. And up until that point, you know, it was 86 years of nothing. And the dropkick Murphy somehow hooked up with the Red Sox and they did this song called Tessie. And it was like a re kind of a remake of an old, old song from like the early 1900s or just like the, I that's where the inspiration came from anyways. And they did this song and they filmed this video at Fenway park, uh, and they came to us and were like, we have this footage. We hate the way this thing's coming out. Can you guys do something with it? So I edited a video that for them that was like, it was a lot better than what they had, but it's, you know, it wasn't great, but that ended up going on a, 
the single for that song, the CD-ROM um, for the single Tessie for the Dropkick Murphys. And then they wanted like a making of or something of, of Tessie. So we started doing interviews with them. And as we started talking to them and then talking to other, we started interviewing other like baseball people, like uh, that guy, like Peter Gammon from ESPN and like uh, Johnny Pesky and like all these different like people, like somehow we, they, we got interviews with him. We're like, man, this way more here than a making of a song for this is like a full documentary here. And like, are you guys cool if we pursue this? And they're like, yeah, definitely do that. So, and they're like, and by the way, here's this guy who did a book on the Royal Rooters. It's called Royal Rooters. That was Boston's first uh, group of crazy fans. Like, and they really set the tone for like sports fans everywhere. Like, and I'm like, we're like, okay, I don't know what you're talking about, but like, here's this guy's contact information. His name's Peter Nash. Get in touch with him. He, he wrote a book about this. Like, uh, okay, sure. So we get in touch with this guy, Peter Nash. He just seems like a, like a, ba- like a baseball nerd guy. Like just kind of like middle-aged, like dude in a baseball had all this paraphernalia. Me and Ian were working on this thing. This guy shows up and he had like what was supposedly, which we found out later might not have been true, but like, you know, the, the ball that was thrown out the first pitch at the opening of Fenway park and like all this like paraphernalia just with them. that was worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's just carrying it. In a sack. He's just carrying it around. Like, <laughs> like literally. And then we're talking and he's like, Oh, so he's, and we're showing him what we're working on. And we're talking and he's like, so he's like, we got, you guys like in, in bands or like in music. And we're like, we're like, oh, yeah, kind of. And we're just not, you're not really getting into it. Cause we're like, this guy, he's not going to know what we're talking about. And it's like, oh yeah, I used to do music. And we're like, oh really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like literally like a half hour later, it comes up again. And we're just kind of like, yeah. And I'm like, whatever. This guy's like just a fucking whatever. Like who knows what he saw? He was like in a bar band or something probably. Right. And then he tells us, He's like, yeah, yeah, because he, he wouldn't really let it go. And he's like, yeah, we had the song, you know, it was Pop Goes the Weasel. And I'm like, wait. And I stop. And I don't know if you, do you remember, do you, do you remember yes. Third Base? Yes. I stop and I look at him. I'm like, his name's Pete. And I'm looking at him. And, and, you know, he's a bit heavier than he was. And he's not all like, you know, gangstered out. And he just looks like he's wearing a sweater and like just normal yeah. clothes. And I'm like, holy, f- are you in Third Base? And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you're fucking the sinister prime minister, Pete Nice. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> so, all right. I think we got a legit, a legitimate like producer here who can help us with this thing. Long story short, short. He ended up being kind of a fraud. He, uh, he's the co. He was like one of the executive producers, but like he never really came through with much of anything. And uh, we finished that thing off and we, you know, we kind of got taken for a ride, uh, like just on the distribution side of things. But um, I'm not sure if he ever saw any money from it, but he never gave us much of anything that he was supposed to. Um, And he ended up, I don't know if he ever did any jail time, but he was in a lot of hot water for like fraud, like, like, uh, baseball memorabilia fraud. It was a, it was the a guy from third base. Yeah. There's a big a whole thing about it. Like if you Google it, it's like, um, 
there's a big thing about it, like on the, on, I think it was the New York post or something, but like, it was a big deal. I don't know where it ended up. Cause I just like lost contact with him, but like, yeah, it kills me. Cause I, that thing was all over the place in the malls. It, it we got it played on our, the local network here, uh, Nesson, it got, it, it was playing nonstop. The documentary, so he, your new documentary you're talking about. Yeah, this documentary. We were nominated. What was the name for, of it? What was the name of it? Emmy Awards. Yes, I didn't even mention that. It's called Rooters: The Birth of Red Sox Nation. So that was me, and you were, and you were nominated for an Emmy. Yeah, um, that's it, pretty badass, man. It, I think it sold quite a bit, and we never saw a dime. In fact, like we had money invested in it still. So it kind of, if you see it and you want it, please steal it. Um, <laughs> Don't give them any money for it. Uh, and then, for that matter. If you see chip on my shoulder and you want it, depending on where it is, maybe steal that one too. <laughs> but um, I noticed I looked that up and there was a thing that said release pending, but I didn't. I don't, let's not jump to that. Yeah, dude, you I'm you, you made your first VH. No, 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 no. You made your first VHS for your band, and you're an Emmy nominated co-director, writer, editor of a fucking documentary about the Red Sox. Yeah, it's pretty surreal, dude. It was a weird thing because at that time in my life, I was I was real. I had a lot of Boston pride built up in me. It was like I got to get out of California. I'm going back to Boston. I'm Boston, Boston, Boston. Everything was Boston for me. Um, I was like, they like me back there. I'm going back there, you know. Like, and it it really wasn't. It wasn't the way I left it, you know. So like like I had a hard time like kind of adjusting and finding my place so like working with ian was cool but then doing this project that was just basically all about boston pride really like like that documentary was like real a real boston thing you know and and it was like i wasn't the biggest baseball fan like i said like i wasn't a huge sports fan but i dove headfirst into it i was listening to sports radio all the time like i knew pretty much everything there was to know for a period of time i think it's gone out of my head now but i knew everything there was to know about the red sox from from uh i can only remember like 1903 or whenever the hell they started to 2004 because that's pretty much when we like you know, when it, when it, when it stopped. And then I continued to follow it for a little while and then I just kind of faded away from it. But like, you know, that was huge. And then the next, like one of my other dream things that I was like, I would really wanted to do was, was Slapshot was a, a documentary on Slapshot. Cause, and me and Ian had, we had, would talk about it. It's like, dude, if we could do that, that would be fucking amazing. You know, like it, it, it was like a dream project, which, was another thing we got to do. I mean, Slapshot is still one of these like bands that is immediately the first you've talked about probably the three immediate bands that is synonymous with Boston, which is it's blood for blood, Slapshot. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, 10 yard fight. And then also we can even fucking say dropkick burpees. Like this is the stuff that is Boston, you know, it is. Yeah. And, how much do you want to talk about chip on your shoulder? Cause you kind of, I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I mean, we I don't have to get too crazy it. into it. We don't, yeah. Like, don't, don't yeah, get yeah, too yeah. crazy into I it. I can go over it briefly. I mean, like, uh, sum it up, so to speak. It, it was a, it was a dream project for me and Ian. Ian knew those guys really well from touring with them from in blood yeah. for blood. So he like, he had a connection with them and like, you know, he, he worked at them and like, finally, you know, we got, you know, choke was kind of hard to like, to, to kind of convince, I think, you know, um, 
but it, it was great. It, it took us a long time to do it. We did a lot of interviews. I think, I think we maybe had too many interviews that might've been part of the, cause so when it came try, time to try to cut the thing together to tell the story, it, that was the bulk of the time. I mean, it took us, I think it took us three or four years from the time we started making it to actually finish it. Um, and the, that Rudis documentary took a couple of years too, at least, at least two, probably three. Um, Chip on my shoulder came out in 2008. No, it didn't. We finished it in 2008 and it premiered at uh, some film festivals in 2008. And we gave Curtis from Tang the master in 2008. And then he sat on it for, I think the DVD came out in 2012. I think he sat on it for four years, which killed me. Cause like, I knew we weren't going to see a dime from it. Like I, I kind of knew it by the time we were done with it. He had given, he had given us some money. Cause originally we, we went in on, in on it to try like as partners with Slapshot and like, we're like, we'll just put all our own money into it. We bootstrapped it. Like if there's any money on the back end, that's what we'll get paid back. Um, but at some point we're like, just like struggling and like we needed help. And we went to Curtis cause we also figured we're going to need his permission to use a lot of this music too, because I think he owned, he owned a lot of their rights as far as I know, like publishing and stuff. So like we talked to him, he gave us pretty much barely enough to get us like to a point where we could keep surviving and uh, continue on this thing. And then when we delivered it, um, it was like just radio silence. You just sort of disappeared. And, you know, we, I think Ian tried to get in touch with him a bunch of times and it was kind of like every once in a while, he'd have some kind of cryptic response. Then finally, you know, the thing comes out in 2012. And what killed me about it was like, not that we didn't get money off it, but like I saw it as this was my dream project. I want the world to see this even more so than Reuters. Cause like Reuters, like, I, you know, that was great and everything. And like for mainstream, that was maybe impressive, but like, that wasn't where my, really where my heart was, you know? So like, this was something that was like, like if you would have told me that I was going to make this thing when I was in high school, I would have been like, you're out of your fucking mind. Are you kidding me? Like it, it was like a dream. So like for the world not to be able to see it, it just killed me. Cause like, I thought that at least what I could get out of it was, a little recognition and hopefully some work because it, you know, at the end of the day, we, we got to pay our bills at some point, you know, um, which well, is, it sounds, it sounds like it's hard in one aspect to kind of go in on these documentaries because the payout is, is not as secured as something else would be. But I also love that sometimes you do things out of passion too, but I, it sounds like there's a frustration there. It's, Oh, it's very, I mean, I think you, talk to any filmmaker who's done a full-length project whether it's like narrative like scripted or documentary that's put like years of their life into something there's it happens so often and luckily we we were doing documentaries so there wasn't like a huge budget involved but sometimes people put like you know they get you know hundreds hundred thousand dollars into something or like and they never see that money back because what happens is by the time you get to that the part where you're done, you're like, well, now I need to get it to the world. You think you go to a distributor and they're going to take care of that and put it out there and they're going to handle the business end for you. 
Um, and so many times people sign shady deals and like the distributor walks away and they probably don't make a ton of money, but they make some money and then you never hear from them again. And distributors, that, are, distributors are basically like the record label of the, the but decision. super shady. Like there's okay. like, like super shady. And if you talk to Ian, who's he's got his stories about I, that. Cause I, I literally went playing to talk to him about the agnostic front thing specifically yeah. because it's on the same, it sounds like it's on the same time, like the same, the same level of chaos that comes from doing something that's critically acclaimed and been in film fests. And it seems I mean, like it, it seems, it seems so stressful and painful. Cause I know you guys put so much into this, you know? And what he did was amazing. I haven't talked to him too recently. I know there was a lot of trouble with his, uh, with distributor with the, the company was called distributor. They were basically the aggregator who would get everything out to iTunes and, yeah, and, um, excuse me, iTunes and like Hulu and Amazon and all that stuff. And, um, I know what the, what little I know about it, because I know what happened to a bunch of filmmakers is they went bankrupt and then people just never saw a dime. Yeah. Cause they're, they're bankrupt. I saw, I saw the AF video of my wife and it teared me up. Yeah, it was uh, good. Um, AF is obviously another huge impact in my hardcore life and my real life. So seeing that it was hard. I wrote, I wrote Roger a letter just telling him like a, an email form, obviously, but I wrote him this long thing just being like, I, I, I love this thing and all this stuff. And he actually kind of, I'll say, you know, like a good embarrassment. Yeah. I had the one of this is hardcore, uh, two year, actually last year back last year we did it. And, uh, he said, just want to thank Joe for writing me this letter about the movie. And it like literally choked me up again. Because <laughs> here's a hardcore hero, and I just want to tell right. him, like, hey man, your movie's awesome, you're awesome. And he like kind of put it out there, put me on blast in front of people. So, I think that I'm sorry, I was just gonna say no, 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 go for it. What Ian what Ian managed to do there was amazing, it was a huge task, and the way he went about it, I think was great. It was it was kind of like I feel like it was it was sort of what we were trying to do with Chip on my shoulder with Mark and Choke, but he took it, he's like I don't know if it, I think he, like, he learned so much from what we did there and took it to the next level um, and made it that much better. I mean, what he made there was like amazing. Um, you know, what I was saying, I think from, with Chip on his shoulder, I think we interviewed too many people. And I Can you, I, this is the second time you brought this up and I, I, and I would like, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but maybe at a, at a service level. What it, what makes a good documentary is having perspective from pe- different people, but I could totally see what you're saying where too many people make it hard. So I it kind of explained the difference. And I think it's it, a little right. bit. Of a, and I don't want to, I'm not going to like when we were making chip on my shoulder, the one thing I think that we got right, because we realized it real early on was like, we can't just make a timeline. You can go online. You at that point, you could go to oldtimehardcore.com and click on it. And the first thing I think you saw was a timeline. It's like, why would we make a video? that's just going to talk about, this is how we started. This is what this band member left. This is that, this is, you know, like you can read that. That's not real interesting. So for us, it was like, we had, I mean, could you think of a, a more interesting guy in, in hardcore to explore than choke? I mean, really like it was like, if we could crack them open, and get stuff out of him, like super interesting guy. And then Mark also, but like on the opposite act of, 
opposite kind of end of the spectrum, like super, super posy, like just like you wouldn't even guess it. If you didn't know, you wouldn't guess he was, that it was in a band with someone like Choke, like in Slapshot, you know? So there's like these two polar opposites working against each other. And, and like we did focus on that, but we try to get too much of the other stuff in there at the same time, I think. Um, whereas I think, you know, what Ian did really well was was stuck to Roger and Vinny's story, you know? Cause like, again, you can, you can go online and just, you can figure, you can read the timeline. There's, there's no, so I think, uh, you know, with, with hardcore documentaries, a lot of times you see that and it's kind of like, they were so close, but they should have just pulled this thread a little bit more and uncovered like what that guy just said. Why didn't you talk more about that? That was amazing. You know, I wanted to hear more about that. I didn't need to hear about like why you kicked this guy out, you know, and replaced him with that guy because you know he wanted to go to college and he was tired of like working his part-time job like now when you do you your vid you're you're watching all these things and as it what happens when you get great audio but terrible visual is there a way to separate the two sometimes uh well i mean you can cover that up with b-roll and like you know which is you know so i so b-roll is i don't know the b-roll is basically just images that go along with the the the, the audio so a lot of times old old um video footage you know if you're doing a hardcore documentary the, the go-to is to find old um video footage of the bands playing or photos we definitely did a lot of that with Slapshot. uh you know what ian had a bunch of like reenactment stuff which was crazy it looked look looked amazing what do you um, mean that, what's that mean they well, I mean, they recreated. I think they recreated uh, Roger's apartment, like oh, okay, some okay, of those okay, scenes, okay, and they, okay. they did some other stuff. I haven't seen it in a while, but like they kind of reenact. I mean, it was a whole nother level of production going on there. Um, but you know, again, this is just also this is just my opinion. You know, <laughs> like I'm not an expert. No, I'm not, no, you know, I like, what I'm I saying like is it. the way to the only way to do it. Um, but it's just like what interests me. Like I want to hear stories about the people, like, and their relationships. You know, no, I think I the, think people I think part. people people drive stories and documentaries. You know, yeah. and, and you know, as we're documenting your story right now, it's the same thing. Like, it's the, it's the perspective and the interplay of people, and, and and I think that sometimes when I see a hardcore documentary, the ones that have failed have been thirty blurbs from people you probably yeah. didn't need without some of the more poignant direct, you know, like it's it, that's where the failings of some of them, but I mean, <laughs> there's not too many out there, but occasionally you're like, Oh, I get it. You wanted 40 of your friends in this documentary. Right. And, and I don't know, man, I'm, I'm torn. Like, I don't want to say anything bad about anyone, but sometimes you see ones just like what you're talking about and they do really well and they make a lot of money and you're just, I, it leaves me scratching my head. And it's like, I know we can do better. You know what I mean? Like, I know we can do better. Um, again, though, that's just my opinion. But like, you know, I see something like what Ian did. And like, man, I I, th- I, th- I think he pulled it through. I, like, I, th- I think he, uh, in, in the end, I think he managed to, um, to save the, I don't know, hopefully he didn't lose his shirt is what I'm trying to say. No, I think... Um... I think the way he he kind of described it is there's a lot going on in the process, and I feel like he was 
he was talking about distributors. There was, for me, I was trying to have a viewing and and, and help promote it in some regard. And he was constantly bringing back up the distributor. And then as early as they limit, they totally limit what you can do. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole thing about the, (laughs) if it's released before it's out, then it doesn't get picked up because it's been distributed and it can only be shown at a film festival and yeah. it can't be shown. Cause I just wanted to have it. I'm like, look, we got a venue down the street from this is hardcore. We'll yeah. get a goddamn movie screen. Let's do it. And he was like, I would love to, but if it's shown outside of a film fest, it's yeah. harder for it to be picked up. And I'm like, God, there's so many rules. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah it's, 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 it's a, it's kind of a shitty industry to be honest with you. Like very hard to make money. Most people fail at it. Um, I've continually failed at it. Like the only, the only, I'll be honest, the only way that I'm getting this done that, you know, I, I learned from years of experience, like I got to keep my budget next to nothing for, for don't stand in line. I'm talking about now. No, no, no. I want you, this is um, exactly the segue we should have. Um, it's like, it's like, I got to keep my, my budget next to nothing. So all I'm really putting it in, into it is a little bit of travel expense and my time. So I had to come up with an idea that was like, because I've got, I've got like my notes app on my phone. It's just filled with ideas. <clears throat> and I've been coming up with these ideas for, I don't know. I never stopped coming up with them since I was working with Ian. But like, you know, I hit a point where like you get married and having kids and it's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta buckle down. I, I took a full-time job for a bit and I, I could only hang with that for so long. And I went crazy and, it was like, I got to go out. I know I can make more money on my own. I just got to hustle. So like I started doing that and I got clients. So I've been doing corporate work, started a wedding uh, video company that brings in decent money. And I like, I string all these things together and that's how I make a decent living. And I finally, in the last year or two, got to the point where like, I got my head above water enough where it's like, okay, I can invest a little bit of time and my own money in like a project I want to do. You know what I mean? So how what's did- it going to be? How did how did don't stand in line become the top of the heap of ideas? So I kept coming back on, on a lot of the the ideas I was coming up with. I kept coming back to to things that I mean they always involved hardcore or BMX or skateboarding. Like it was always like, and sometimes like all of them. It was like those are the things that just like 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 I went to a period in my life where it was like, oh, it's time to be an adult. Like. Yeah, I still like the stuff, but like, you know, I'm going to, I was I basically was tried to hide it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, not being myself. It's like, I need to be, you know, fit in and get this, get a job. And I, you know, I went through a couple of years of that. And it's like, I came back out of that. And I'm like, fuck that. Like, if I'm going to put my time and energy into something, like, these are things that like, you know, 46 years old and I'm still interested in. It. So there's something there. Like, I don't, I don't, you know. <laughs> it's kind of strange when I was, when I was a kid, there weren't 46 year olds into this stuff, but that's the no. way it is, you know? So if I'm going to put my, my, my heart and soul into something, it's going to have to do with this. And then the other thing that I've always, that I've been interested in, in a lot is uh, entre- entrepreneurship, basically. Like how do people like, like I want to, I don't, I, I, I've never been able to wrap my head around sitting in an office and not like, like, I'm a bad employee. I'm like almost unhirable. Like I can't have, I can't not have control over my own time. I'm just like, like I hate the idea of, of having to ask permission to like, to 
take a day off or like if my kid's sick to stay home or like things like that. Like I, I'm just real bad with that. So like, I, I never stay at jobs very long. Cause like I get, I can't deal with it. So it's like, I got real interested in like, all right, how do people build businesses? Cause I don't know. All I know is the DIY, like how to get things done, but usually not make much money at it. So like, how do you actually make money doing this stuff? And unfortunately it's always been stuff that's like, not where my heart is, but it's like, it, it, I can get the job done and it pays pretty well. So I do, you know, like corporate and wedding stuff, but like, I've been able to take that, some of that money and roll it into this project. Um, so, I mean, the idea came about because like I kept coming back around to BMX gate and hardcore. And then there was the entrepreneurship thing. And then I'm looking like one day it occurred to me, I'm like looking at my, my Facebook friends or Instagram friends. And I'm like, I'm looking at all these people that like I've known forever and they're doing really cool shit. And some of them I'm like, I don't know if they're making any money doing this, but they're doing really cool shit and people are paying attention. And it's just because basically they never stopped, you know? Um, and I feel like there's a lesson there. And like a lot of it was just, just my selfish curiosity. It was like, I want to know how the fuck they're doing this. Like Steve Crandall, the owner of FBM bike company, I met him in 1993. He had a t-shirt company. I always did like, like I did a couple little t-shirt companies when I was in high school, like that were like BMX t-shirt companies. So I had this like uh, a t-shirt company I was doing. I went out to Newburgh, New York to the skate park and we were both like trying to hawk our t-shirts that we printed in our garage. His was FBM who went on to become you know, 25 years later, a full-fledged bicycle manufacturing company, in like a U.S. manufacturing company that actually make the frames in the United States, which is not very common. No, it's incredible. Um, and <clears throat> the shirt, like we traded T-shirts. The shirt I gave him was probably the last run of, I probably never did it, made another, another batch. Like, why did he do that? And I just kind of threw in the towel. You know what I mean? And Years later, when I, when I was at 411 and he had his company going, I contacted him. I'm like, hey, remember me? And it's like, yeah, hey. And, you know, we, you know, I had him in some of the videos. And, like, I just know these, and, you know, Chris Wren, he got going on his thing kind of when I was checking out of uh, the, you know, Boston hardcore scene. And, like, you know, like not even seven years down the line, he was like the biggest hardcore label out there. And 25 years later, he's still on top, you know, there's, and then, you know, we have Sonny, sorry, Sonny, I didn't know very well going into this. Um, I met him actually, did I never finish my under pressure story? Did I, but I met him when I was filming uh, the first steps last show, I was doing that, which was supposed to go in like the third issue of under pressure, which never ended up coming out. And I went out there with me and some other kid that, that I had, I think I met him on the bridge nine board. I was like, Hey, I need someone to help me film this show who wants to go out. And this kid came along and I had rented all these cameras and like, you know, I spent a decent amount of money. And like, I think, uh, my third camera I had, do you know, championship records? Yes. You remember that venue? Yeah. We had it up. We had it up on top of like, there was like a closet or something. And I climbed up 
in the back of the room and I climbed up on this closet and had it on a tripod and it filmed the set. And when I went back to check it over, the whole lens had fogged up. So it was like, you could, you couldn't see anything. Oh shit. So I, I don't, I think I put the word out. I was like, Hey, I, you know, or I asked, maybe I asked a Ram and he was like, Oh yeah, contact this dude. And it ended up being sunny. Sonny gave me his tape and it was great. Unfortunately, the audio recording didn't come out. So they didn't, they never really wanted to do anything with it. And I never did anything with it, but, um, that's how I met Sonny. And then, you know, years later I'm looking, you know, I stumbled on his website and it's like, was that the guy? And then like, I went back and I looked at the tape. I'm like, that's the dude that sent me that tape. That's that kid that sent me that tape. And he had this like empire going. And I was just like, this is fucking crazy. So like, and he had just started actually, um, doing it full time and trying to like make it his, his full-time gig. You know, I quit his job and like that had only happened maybe before I contacted him. I think it was only six or nine months beforehand. So I was really interested to see how, talk to him and see how that was going and how he was making that work. Um, and then Greg, let's see, I, I talked to her. I might as well mention Greg. So Greg Walsh, like I said, I met when, when I was doing 411, but a long time, like a uh, guy from the hardcore scene in New York, um, very involved with BMX and different BMX companies always had some kind of like he worked at different companies, but he always had his own thing going. And then when I, I got in touch with him and I was like, what have you been up to? And he's been doing this thing called Wolf Brigade, which is this like, I don't even know how to to, to describe it, but it's, I say it's like a CrossFit gym. It was run by a hardcore kid. And that's exactly what it is. But it's like when you like- say, when you say CrossFit, you start to think, you start to think of something that doesn't really fit, but that's kind of what it is. Yeah. It's like a, if a hardcore kid ran a gym, like a, right. like a CrossFit gym. It, exactly what it is. Uh, and, and it, and it's, but it's even more than that. Like it's a whole philosophy and it's a whole thing. Like it's, 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 it's hard to describe, but he's been doing that. And um, so all these guys, they're very different, but they all have the same. At the heart of it. They have the, like, like, it's kind well, of the same thing that makes them tick, you know. Let's break it down because I, I feel like in the podcast I'm doing, there's a lot of similarities. Would you say, based upon, especially with Chris, Sonny, and all that, that you're you're seeing these lines between this obsession that they grow out of, like they grow into, they are insanely driven and also super creative. Would you say exactly. these are all these are all three things that are definitely everybody has? Those are all things, and it's the and and. It's not the, the, the drive, the, like uh, I'm, I'm quoting one of Chris's lines now, but like what he, he says it exactly is like the driving factor has never been money. Like for none, for any of these guys, I don't think it was, it was never about money. No. Like, I think they want to make enough money to get by and have a decent life, but like, it's not money. Um, they would, they, they, they do this regardless. I mean, like, you know, I don't know how much, you know, you know, one of Chris, Chris, Chris's lines is like, I hope this, you know, shows people that Chris it's in the trailer. So I'm not revealing too much, but like, you know, I hope this clears up that Chris Wren's not a millionaire, you know, rumor. Or whatever, no, but like, Chris, Chris Wren, Chris Wren did what you did in college, except for he stayed with the graphic design. Right. And he'll even tell you that, you know, it's his graphic design background that probably gave him his most amount of money. And then the Sully's, you know, there's a lot of things that people don't see because they see the record label. Well, um, 
what I like to say is that I find that the people who have the insatiable drive, who have the creative part, which isn't when I say creative, I think some people think they could fucking sketch a drawing. It's not just the physical representation of art, but it's creative problem solving too. And it's like the creativity to where someone would get boxed in where they don't see that and they get around it. Yeah. And then I would also say that they are hyper-focused on completing the task for the task's sake, not the monetization. Right. Exactly. And I I think you need all those elements along with what you said about, we were talking about or back to our previous with the manifestation. You know, like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta gotta see it before it can happen, I guess, you know, but, and and if you focus and it's, and you had said it as well, it's like, you gotta kind of, you gotta focus on it. You can't just think about it and hope that it's happening. You gotta focus on it. I think you gotta tell people about it. You just gotta get out there and spread the word and make it happen. And like, and all these guys do that. And, and, and there's that common, I guess the common thread between it all would be music um originally when i was putting the idea together for this thing uh, you know if you notice there's not much of a skate element to it i I really wanted to get skate in there as well and i also wanted to get kind of like art and filmmaking and like all because to me they all kind of like there's that common music tie it's it's either it's either hardcore or some kind of punk rock that like ties all those things together um but really because I wasn't exactly sure what I was doing, I wanted to, I wanted to to get guys that I knew fairly well. Like again, I didn't know Sonny that well, but I had talked to him. You know what I mean? And I and I felt like he would get what I was trying to do. So I wanted guys that um, I knew pretty well, and that we that they would get it. You know, they would get what I was trying to do, even if I didn't exactly know what it was yet. If that makes sense. Um, and budgetary reasons like practical reasons i had to stay within driving distance really like so because of those things it was like well these are all four guys that i would love to focus on i wish i could get a skate guy in there but i can't but when i got all their stuff together man it it didn't really need it like other than the other than to check the skate box it really didn't need it like the it's all there and it doesn't matter like what you're into like you may not be into hardcore or BMX or skateboarding, but if you're into snowboarding or if you're into, if you're, if you ever tried to do anything that wasn't just straight down the path of like high school, college, you know, go sell insurance and, and like, you know, have the family and the picket fence. If you tried to stray off that at all in your life, I think you're going to get something out of this and relate to it. You know? No, we keep saying this. What it uh, for people who this is called Don't Stand in Line, it's a docu series, yes. And so, uh, run down what it is that this thing is, and because we're talking about the making of it, but I think it's good for you to lay out exactly what this is. That's a good point, <laughs> it's all good. No, we're having a good conversation. I don't want to break it up because, yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. what people are putting into it is honestly more important than the end result, but I think it's important for you to sell it on the end result end of it. Right. No, I hear you. So it's a docu-series. I thought about making a, uh, a feature-length documentary, but honestly, like one of the reasons it's a docu-series is because in order for me to actually, um, I, 
a lot of times I just fly by the seat of my pants and I do things on a whim. And like I, like I said, I had, I had a list of ideas for projects going forever. And it's like, okay, I want to do something. What can I do that I have resources that I can do on a practical sense? Well, let's make a series of like, let's do a web series or something. Like I could do that pretty easily. All right. Who do I have con- Who do I have connections with that might be into doing something like this? And I came up with, with, with the list of people. Um, and then, so like, like, I, I just literally one morning, like I was just sitting there, like, I don't want to go and edit weddings right now. Like I'm going to email these fucking people and see what they say. And to their credit, Chris, Steve, Greg, and Sonny both got back to me within a couple hours and they were like fully on board and wanted to do it. So like, okay. And the way I explained it to them, I think was like a web series because I didn't want it to, I didn't want to overwhelm them and I didn't want to overwhelm myself. It's like, if I just like, Hey, I'm going to make a feature length doc, like, fuck, that's an overwhelming task, you know? Um, so I didn't want to bite off more than I could chew. Once I filmed with everyone, I was like, I got enough here. Like I could totally make this a feature, but also I thought it was like, it would be cool to do a series. Like I, I got all, I'll, I'll, I'll just flat out admit, I, when I, when I decided to do it, I was watching lots of next um, Netflix um, documentary series. Like, yeah, I was just addicted to watching those. I'm like, there's something really cool about that format because you can, you don't have to sit down for two hours to watch something, you know, you, you get it in bite-sized chunks. And that format I thought would really lend itself well to this because it's entertainment, but there's a lot of like kind of deep stuff coming out and a lot to absorb. And if you just sat through and watched it in a two hour chunk, or I think it's an, ends up being 140 minutes, um, so like two and a half hours or something. Like it's a lot to take in. It's a little overwhelming. So like, I think like what I did is I, the first five episodes are about 20 minutes a piece. So I said, you know what? I'm just gonna pretend I'm making a Netflix docu series. Like I'm just gonna make this. Like I filmed it well enough, and I'm like, I think I can put this together and present this in a way that like you would totally see it and be like damn, that thing could be on Netflix. And it, and it, I don't know, I'm partial. I got a biased opinion, but I, I think it holds up. And that's, I mean, that's basically why I went with the docuseries. So essentially is we, you're running a, we're running a pre-sale, which will end today and it comes out. I actually think that the smartest thing you could have done was add the docuseries format because it's honestly how so many people are ingesting their media from Netflix now, yeah. you know, the popularity of unsolved mysteries, all the different little, um, in that tiger King. Ca- <laughs> yeah. The tiger King. Like these are, these are all things that I specifically see at a mass consumed level. And so I think that you did the smartest thing, which is, Hey man, we are in the, uh, vernacular of times as a docuseries. <laughs> And I'll tell you the other part about it was I didn't want to just do like a one-off project and, and be done. Like I see this going, like, like I said, I've got a list as long as my arm of people who would be great to to do this with. I could have, I could have picked, I could do this probably 10 more times, you know, without even well, I, breaking I a sweat. Think you could. I think you the, the web series allows you like volume one, volume two, it allows right. you to continue onward. And so that's why I'm calling I'm, it's season one. So like I've already started talking to some people about doing season two, like 
and getting really good feedback from that. Like if it wasn't for the whole COVID thing, I would have already started filming it. I think, you know, um, I actually think it'll be good because there's there's always a captive audience. Yeah. You know, right. so the 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 what do they say? The light behind the clouds is that hey, you know what? There's gonna be people that are home that are dying to just check out anything that's not what's because everyone's been through Netflix, right? Amazon Prime, like right, everyone's all that's kind of to run dry, yeah. Yeah, you know, even with them putting stuff on the you know, a monthly, there's always going to be people that want to not only support hardcore, but learn about hardcore. And so I, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship, which is, I have something I'm learning from this podcast is that people hit me up and they say the most simple things, which is like, I can't believe that that's, that's what this person knew when he started, because from outsiders, you look at someone who is uh, venturing forward as having to have all the pieces in their hands. when they start. Yeah, and the more you speak with someone, you realize, no nah, man, a lot of this is fly by the seat of their pants. Yeah, and the if there's a will, there's a way kind of shit, and and it's inspiring. And I think in a time when things look so bleak, that we need to be inspired, and we need people that we already look to, you know. And I think it's good you covered a bunch of different things. Like obviously in the COVID environment, I can't tell you the number of my friends who have taken fitness more seriously. It's fucking great. It's like yeah. awesome. Yeah. So who, who better to have than Wolf Brigade fucking gym? It's crazy. <laughs> you know, and uh, for me personally, something that I've been getting more interested over the last couple of years is just really respecting someone who is not just putting a stamp on something that is made somewhere else. But the fact that American made products are coming out and by people that we're friends with is fucking fantastic. Right, right. So, I mean, there's so many lessons that you're going to be teaching people with this docu series. Um, I'm a ma- I, maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna guess or I'm gonna take a shot at was don't stand in line, kind of like a way of saying like it's not gonna happen for you if you wait. You gotta go out and get it. Or where did you get that? Where did you get the byline from? I mean, so like. <clears throat> I've I've always been a fan of that uh the what was oh shit man I should know it it's uh <laughs> Ian McKay I'm the same way Ian McKay uh Palehead it's okay. late <laughs> sorry <laughs> no 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 sorry the Palehead <laughs> song so there's that and I don't know specifically that those lyrics exactly express what I'm trying to get across but like to me they do I don't know that's how I I interpret it to be like don't just don't don't play the role, you know, don't just, don't go to, don't just go to high school and then go to college because they tell you to, and then go out and get the nine to five and, and, and do the thing just because they tell you to don't, don't just stand in line and wait for your turn to do the thing, you know, that you probably don't even want to do. You're going to find yourself, you're going to wake up and realize you've been living someone else's life. You know, like if you want to do something, you, you got to, you got to make your own, it sounds corny to say, cause, but like you make your own path, you know, like you got to make your own way and no, like that's the thing about all these people that the, the, the four guys in this and all these other people on the list and yourself and myself and anyone you talk to who's, who's been through any of this, like there's no straight path to success. Like everyone's got a different way of going about it. 
and it's just a lot of it's circumstance it's your drive it's your 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 head your um your mind frame at certain times like there's been time there's been plenty of times where like this thing almost didn't come out because i like it's like ah oh, man who really cares like like i'm like this is a lot of work like it sucks like if i didn't feel like i was gonna let those guys down by not doing it it may not have happened because you know 2020 has been rough man you know <laughs> um no, i think i think you're i think but, you're having some worry but i think also there's just some amazing small things that are just becoming something that captivates people. I don't know whether it's if you checked out some of these live streams that some of these bands have been doing. Yeah. Or just some of these releases that are just coming out. Like there's a band from New York, Mind Force. They released a single and people just need to gravitate from our world. We need we don't have shows. We right. don't have the communion of everyone getting together. So I think that you're keeping everyone's excitement up. And I know that it's always hard when your face is closest to a project. Cause I've looked at, I've looked at this hardcore lineups. I've looked at shows lineups and I've learned to look to other people. And this is where I was going to get to a question. When you had doubts, did you have anybody that you were, uh, do you, did you show anybody and say, Hey, I don't even know if this is worth it or. Yeah. I mean, so I definitely, well, I definitely passed it by, you know, um, all the guys, you know, but outside of the project, I passed it by John LaCroix, someone who I always talk to about this stuff. Yeah, he's a fucking man, and he's also a fucking man. He he knows. I mean, he's not going to blow smoke on my ass either. Uh, Ian McFarland's another guy. I was like, he put out. I was he put out the AF doc, and I'm like, I don't know if I even want to show this to him. You know what I mean? But he told me I was going in a good direction. Gave me a couple little notes, which were much appreciated. Um, and like, aside from that, it was, you know, it's mostly just those guys, you know, as far as, as far as like full things, you know, obviously my wife and, you know, my kids were like, yeah, that's cool. Except for the, <laughs> but, uh, my wife will say that she'll give me any bit of advice, but I'll listen to everyone else first. And I'll even come to her yeah. and say, Hey, someone said this to me. She's like, I'm the one who fucking said that to you. That definitely is, happened is it, a couple of times. <laughs> that's the that's the nature of it is that we hear good advice, but we sometimes don't attribute it to them. Well, sometimes you want you you want it from a a more removed source too, and and also it's just like it just verifies. It's not it's not like uh, negating what they said, but it's like it, it's a second. It's like getting a second opinion. Like if two people say, it, all right, then it's for sure. You know what I mean? Um, no, I've 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 found that we get so deep into our own excitement about our project that we get lost in the finality of it. And then we don't feel like it's good enough. So I rely heavily on other people just to say, no, 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 this is good. Like chill. Or they'll say like with Ian's case, I have the kid, Bob Wilson, who'll be like, uh, I would make sure this band plays here. And I'm like, Oh shit. I didn't even look at it. Like you always need that outside perspective when we're so close to a project, yeah. you know? Yep. I mean, I got to say, like, I could have had this thing done a long time ago, but like I would get I would get stuck in, inside my own head, you know, because it's you're like you just second guessing yourself, you know, like the whole way. And it, it's tough, you know, but no, it, I feel but part and part of I got to say this because this is important. The. It was kind of like 
I was just drinking my own Kool-Aid. The, the way I got through this and the way I've been putting this out was like, when I would sit down and watch what these guys have to say, and like, it was basically just keeping me going because like everything that they say is super inspirational. It's like, fuck, if these guys are, they're telling me what I need to hear to keep me going to finish the project. You know what I mean? It was kind of funny. It was like, like, ah, I don't want to finish this. I don't have it in me to finish this project about this inspirational guys telling people how to finish projects or like how to do things. Like, you know what I mean? It was like almost ridiculous. Um, but I, I think a lot of people like, hopefully people will get something out of this. It will help them like maybe get them out of a rut or like show them a different, you know, there is a different way. Like, you know, it's not easy. It's not quick. There's no get rich quick schemes. That's for sure. Would you, would you be able to say that you learned anything specifically from each one of these people? And which did you learn from? If you did learn anything from these people? I don't know if it's necessarily. It don't have to be. I learned a specific yeah. lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you? What I did mean, you? I, let's use a better word. What do you glean from all these interviews? I mean, the number one thing is to just, to just go. I mean, it sounds cheesy. It's the fucking Nike slogan. Just do it. Like if you have a good idea for something, you got nothing to lose. Just try it. You know. And if it doesn't if it doesn't work out, and you, and you fail, like one of the big things is failure. These these guys they fail all the time. I failed so many, I've got so many failed projects that never went anywhere. Um, but every time you fail, you learn and then you, it just makes you stronger and you keep going. And like, you know, that, that's, that's a big lesson I would say like this. And it's good. Like it's, it's one thing to hear people say this stuff, right. But they say it and then they, t- and then the way they talk about it, they'll tell, they'll, like a, a specifically, especially Chris Wren, he'll tell stories and ex- give you examples of what he's talking. Um, they all do it, but I know like, like um, it, it's definitely gets that point across. It's more illustrated than it is, you know, someone just talking at you, if that makes sense. Cause there's lots of like self-help type, you know, books and podcasts, like how to be successful, how to do this. And like, we're like, yeah, keep trying, you know, there's never failure. It's like, you know, you either fail or you learn like all these things, like these little like slogans that people say. And like, um, that's all great. It's fine and good, but these dudes actually illustrate it, you know, and they show it, they, they show it from their, they talk about the failures and they talk about like, uh, their successes and it's not all monetary. It's not, it's not based on that at all. And like really to say it's about entrepreneurship is doing it a disservice because it's really about uh, a way of life for them. It's like, it's more of a, 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 a direction to choose that, that also helps them pay their bills, but it's not the main reason that they do it. And it's not like, it's not the, the biggest byproduct from it by any means, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I, um, I have been a union cement mason for exactly 10 years in a month. And then I will have been in union concrete as a labor and a cement mason for 15 years. And the question that someone has always said to me is how come you just don't do this for a living, man? I am so fucking scared of crossing the threshold between love of doing hardcore shows 
and love of promoting and love of the culture to it becoming my job that I, I, I literally, I, I have this envy of people who are like, yeah, fuck yeah. This is what I do for hardcore. And I have this like li- living, but I, I just, I have this thing in the back of my head that it just says, Nope, that's not the path for you. Keep doing this. Cause you love this. Right. And dude, I've lost, I've lost so much money on shows and, and, and I, and I don't ever get too upset about it. I mean, I get upset, but I make the bad decision or I've made risk. Cause I'm, I've been doing it too long to make a stupid risk. Right. But even, and I'm definitely not a gambler. So it's not like, hi, oh, I love, I need the risk, but I envy and I love that people are able to drive themselves, not only to success, but able to provide for themselves. And I, and I never want to discredit anybody who does that. And I, and so I know that you say it's cheesy to say entrepreneurial, but the things that we always forget when we do these little tasks is just how, one task becomes uh, completed and then that helps you in a proven thing to work towards something else. And through my, through this podcast that we're doing here, all I have is talk to people who are basically examples of that thing repeating. And it's so fucking goofy that I had a sword fighter on. And then I had a guy who booked, <laughs> that was I, good. I, I, I had a sword fighter guy and he, he's, he's in charge of his own life because he kept pushing forward. I had Sonny and said, Chris, and, and and I'm always excited to hear the same formula repeat in people. So when when you reached out to me and you told and you you showed me what you're up to, I was like, fuck, there's so much similarities that I, I want to see this succeed. Because if this works for you, it means that I'm also not just wasting my time because yeah, I love no, I love not. hearing these I love hearing these guys' stories. I love hearing like, you know, I hate hearing the I hate hearing anyone have downtime. Like, oh, it wasn't so good, but you need to hear that to go. Yeah. You know, like, especially with Chris Wren, where it's like, oh, you know, like there was a partner in a conversation where he's like, well, you know, I'm not the guy who knows. And, then, and I had a, re- and I related to it. There's so much things to relate to. And I think that your medium, especially in a docu-series format with the, you know, with the visuals is going to get people so excited, man. I, I, and I think obviously you have trailers that are up now running. I seen one on the internet with Chris today. And I, and I think that you are always going to be harder on yourself because I know so many creative people are harder on themselves. But I, I really do feel that you're on the right path. I think you selected some amazing guys, man. I'm actually uh, – I would I really am more excited to see the bike one just because I love when people physically make stuff. Yeah. It's yeah, just, yeah. I'm fucking fascinated, man. I'm, I'm fascinated when someone takes, you know, matter – and turns it into a thing. Yep. It's just, yeah. It's just amazing to me. And, and I love the idea of American manufacturing happening. And I, and I think that another thing from COVID and a lot of stuff is you're going to see people having to revert back to these smaller businesses. You know, like you're going to see people like, Hey, I don't like you said about, you know, like it's hard to pour the traditional jobs to always succeed. I'm going to see people that are going to be driving toward these things. So there's another way that I think that you're going to have some inspiration. Somebody might say, man, this guy could do this. Maybe I could start my own. I'm going to make my own skateboards or I'll make my own surfboards. Like there's always people that don't realize how easy it is. Once that kind of fear of, Oh, well, someone else did it. I can also do it comes into play. Right. No, I hear you. It's funny. Like just to, to close that, the, the tail on that under pressure thing, I made one. It sold great. I waited two years 
<clears throat> in that two years, everything went online and fucking uh, Hate Five Six took over. So I put tried to put out a DVD. <laughs> oh shit. And it just tanked. And then I was and then and then I I you know instead of instead of innovating and, and trying to figure out how to keep going, I was just like, I gotta get a job. I gotta feed my family. So like I've been on all sides of it and like and, and uh you know it's I was kidding about Hate Five Six taking over, but I mean in a way no, he did. Like he, did. he he pretty much did. Like <laughs> and it's just that's kind of a full circle thing, but like yeah, DVDs went out whatever there's the internet now that you know there's other things to do like you you uh, about like you were saying about um making you know booking shows full-time yeah man that's always a sticky i kind of experienced that when i when i when i left four and one a little bit man like i was i was real bitter on or not bitter but i was i was real turned off to doing anything involving bmx because like I, i felt like um for through really no fault of my own the thing tanked and I felt like I left kind of the industry with like a weird, uh, like a stink on me kind of was like, I don't think I'll be able to do BM. And then I think a lot of that might've been in my head, <clears throat> but yeah, man, it's a fine line between doing something you love for, for the love of it. And then trying to like make money on it. So, you know, I think it, I think a lot of like some people manage to do it really well. I've never been able to really pull it off. Like I always have to have these other side hustles going that actually bring in the money. You know what I mean? Um, But like, you know, my advice to anyone trying to do it would be to start small, you know, like, you know, and and just kind of test the waters and see if like, you know, how you feel about actually, doing things but the last thing you want is to like tarnish something you love you know i feel um i feel like i want to send you a draft of an episode that's going to come out later than yours one of my closest friends who's the this is hardcore webmaster and our art director and just like one of my longest running and most creative friends i finally got him on the podcast and he's not a he's not a he's the kind of guy who might tell one good joke in a in a in a, in a room full of friends yeah. The entire night he's very insulated. This motherfucker went from being like a guy who just toured in a band, did his thing. And one day he's like, nah, I don't want this for myself. I'm gonna teach myself how to do more. And and he was always creative when it comes to physical drawing. And his story is great. I'm actually gonna send you the secret links. So you can listen to the the draft of it. But yeah, man, yeah, this guy in a matter of like five to six years went from like literally eating shit making bad websites or not bad websites, but like low end websites were like, I think it was like a printer cartridge company. And he just took every job like you were talking about. And in, and we had a conversation where it goes to in a COVID environment, most of the workplaces and people aren't ready to deal with what it takes to shift to remote work. He's been ro- yeah. rem- working, working remote freelance for himself for so long. Right. Like, I've been doing this the whole goddamn time. Right. He'll tell you and his story tells you like it's a pyramid. We have to build we have to build our base as strong as possible. It was also the widest thing, which is like our experience. Yeah. So he was doing so many small little gigs and little gigs, and he was going on websites and finding them and finding them. And he kept saying, Well, I can also learn this and I can also learn that. And he taught himself via YouTube and then like Skillshares and all these different things. Yeah. When he needed to acquire this. And I find 
the mind that can just absorb and constantly like a, like a phone upgrade itself. Yeah. Constantly upgraded his techniques and skills to meet the requirements of the employers that he was trying to attract. Yeah. Yeah. And And then I think that that's what you need to do in this environment. I think you need, that's a growth, growth mindset. I think they they call that. It's like, that's the word. Yes. Constantly. Thank you for saying it. Constantly learning. And like, it's curiosity, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Anyone who succeeds are constantly curious and like trying to learn. And like, I try to be that way and I go through phases where I am and then phases where I'm not. Um, I think you, like, I think, just, you, I think but, you and I have the same brain. We're both like very ADHD. Yeah. We're like, I can't sit. I can't sit down for a long period of time, but I'll tell you what, like if I'm fucking moving, like that's why I always like making things. Yeah. It's it, it, my mind. I get hyper-focused on whatever it is I'm doing. But if I'm sitting there at the computer, fuck you. Like, yeah. like I make these very bad, not good video uh, promos for the, for the podcast. I had to teach myself this and they're only three minutes long. And I'm like, if I have to sit here another 10 minutes <laughs> and, and like with this hardcore, I use Excel sheets and yeah. I spend hours sometimes because I looked at it too much that I'm like, I'm zoned out. And I'm like, all right, my, my focus isn't right. I think that we, I think that we have a very similar mind where like, I would have never made it through college because I would have been like, what is this doing for me right now? I don't want to learn this. Fuck you. You know, like I have that and I have that fuck you button on so many things. So I think that um, I'm going to send you the juice thing. Knowing knowing that this is coming out as at the day that this airs, um, it's going to be interesting to just, I'm excited for you. Um, But uh, I'm going to use some of our conversation and clips. But okay, yeah. I really hope that you continue on with this project, man. And I hope that there's more series that come to follow. And uh, for someone who is checking this, checking this episode that we're speaking on now and it's checking out, uh, what would you say to them about like, Hey, we're going to do more. This is what you hope you glean from it. Like what, what is your end? Yeah. I mean, them? my, my plan is to do is, just keep going with it. I'm already, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm talking to people about doing season two. I got real, some good leads on it. Um, it's probably going to spread a little bit further than BMX and, and hardcore, but it's still going to have that root. Like tie. I mean, it's always going to have something to do with those things for sure. Cause that's just where my interest is, but it may, you know, it may get a little bit more entrepreneurial here and there, but like, you know, cause you, you got to change things as you go. You can't stay the same. You can't put the same song out five times in a row, you know, but it's always going to have that vibe, like, which hopefully, hopefully comes through, you know, like it, hopefully people get something out of this that inspires them. Because I know these four guys that I spent a lot of time listening to their words. I spent a lot of time out, you know, a couple days a piece with each of them, um, shooting this thing and then listening to everything they had to say for the last year and a half, I'm still inspired by them. So hopefully it comes off that way. Um, yeah. If people want to check it out, it's codecprojects.com. It's C O D E C projects.com. Um, on Instagram and Facebook, codec projects. Um, and then there's trailers, the pre-sale. I just saw the one that Chris put out. Yeah. So, so there's, I did like, there's a, there's a minute is a trailer. The first trailer I put out was a minute and a half. I put out 
<clears throat> excuse me, a second one that I, I, I tightened it up down at like 60 seconds just so it could play in line on Instagram without jumping out. Oh, it's um, the IGTV. Yeah. 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 Um, but then I'm probably going to put out, you know, well, this is coming out on 20th. So I don't know. I'm sure I'll end up putting out more stuff. Um, it, uh, just kind of try to keep going with it, you know? I know we talked long, so I have one more question because it's like an ADHD thing. Do you still ride? Do I still ride? I do. Um, it's funny because when I was actually, I, <laughs> I do ride. You guys can go look at my, my Facebook page if you want to see some pictures or something of this. <clears throat> we, I mentioned the movie Rad earlier. Yeah. Back in, I never really stopped riding, but I got, I got real out of shape and I wasn't riding a lot and I would ride like once or twice a year and I'd go out and I'd have fun or I'd just mess around in the driveway, but I wasn't riding like seriously up until 2018. Cause they were doing a, um, hell track was the track in rad and they were doing a thing in Texas where they, um, they basically, they recreated hell track and they were having this like get together for like rad nerds basically. And like guys from the movie were there, the actor uh, Bill Allen from the play Crew Jones was there, and I don't know if you remember the movie, but on the track, the beginning of the the beginning of the race, they all drop in. It's a tw- it's a twenty five foot almost straight drop. So I'm I'm watching the video of this thing, and I'm looking at them like they're doing what, and like I'm watching them build this thing, and I'm like I gotta go to this fucking thing, and like I was I showed my wife, she's like you gotta go do it. And like, when I said, I got to go do that, I'm thinking to myself, uh, yeah, I, I would like to do that, but probably not really. And then I like, I did the thing where I kind of like, I was, I, I decided to tell people about it. Cause like, then they might egg me on and make me do it. So I told her and I told my father-in-law and he was like, I'll, I'll pay for your plane ticket. You got to go. So I was like, ah, yeah, whatever. And then the next thing I know, he's giving me a check and I'm just like, okay. <laughs> so. Went out to Texas in 2018, in the summer of 2018, and I dropped in on the 25-foot, almost straight-down drop. Um, and I didn't eat shit. But the the in and out of that, it was like to prepare for that, I started riding again a lot. And so, like, after that, I started, you know, I, I riding quite a bit. And I was riding a, a lot up until this May. Um I took the stupidest slam, like just, I just wasn't paying attention. And I went over the bars, full speed over the bars, landed on my back and broke a bunch of ribs. And I was out of commission for like, like literally like two or three months. I, I could like barely like, you know, lift a gallon of water. I was just like in a lot of pain. So I've been real, a little bit uh, less riding lately, but I definitely still ride. Uh, probably a couple times a week. At least I go out and mess around on my bike in the in the driveway, and I still skate here and there too. And uh, no bands at the moment, but nah, dude, that's fucking awesome. I had a, the whole time we were talking about. It, I didn't want to. I didn't want. We got so many good like segues into different things that weren't but the bikes. But I was hoping that you still rode. Yeah, man. If you go back and look at my my personal Instagram, like right up until May. I think it was the end of May is when I took that slam and like, like I was doing stuff and I'd post things here and there. Um, I was actually like, I was actually like for the first time in like 20 years, like starting to learn new things and progress. You know what I mean? I was like, I felt like solid on my bike. And then I just like 
just wasn't paying attention for a second and clipped my peg on a on a on a rail and just went over hard and it just it's one of those things that shook me up because like you know i'm 46 like i hit the ground hard and you don't bounce back quite as fast and then you got you know like bills and responsibilities and like you can't pull your weight around the house with the kids and stuff and you're just like oh shit <laughs> no, i yeah. started 20 i started 2020 off breaking my hand in tampa to death before dishonor oh, <laughs> like a fucking idiot oh that's rough <laughs> and, then I, so, and then i went then i went home and was like it's okay and she's like it looks bad i'm like nah i broke this hand before and it'll be all right and then i was working and I did jujitsu, and then she's like, "Please have a surgeon look at it." And yeah. the bone was split in half, and I had to have a fucking surgery. And that's how my 2020 started with like a, "Ah, oh, this is all right. I broke this hand before." And I'm like, I, I, "I like as you're saying the ribs and the and the thing, you're like, I know exactly yeah. what you feel. You're like, fuck, man. And then because you're getting older, you're like, why am I so dumb, <laughs> dude? It's like, um, oh, you know, I'm just having fun. But like, dude, I started 20, not 2020. January 2nd, I had my appendix out. Um, I just like all of a sudden was an incredible amount of pain and had to get like rushed to the hospital, have my appendix out. Two weeks later, my wife had knee surgery. Um, And then COVID happened, (laughs) which we all suffered. And then I did the rib thing. And uh, it's just been rough. My fucking, my dad passed away a couple months ago. I'm sorry to hear that. No, no, no thank you. I mean, and, and then uh, my wife's having knee surgery on the other knee in like a week and a half. So it's you know, it's been on 2020 has been crazy, man. <laughs> I, like it's just been. Luckily, I've been able to keep my uh, like work. Like I've had like my client work has been has been good because like 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 your friend you were saying like he was been working remote the whole time and so have I. And it's just like the hardest thing for me is like normally I'm the only one at home and now everyone's here. So like trying to get work done with, with the kids doing like remote school and my wife's working remotely. It's like, it's a little been challenging, but uh, yeah, I mean, I 2020 has been challenging for everyone. So I, can't I, I tell everybody the same thing. If we survive this, we're going to learn a lot and we're going to be able to look at life in a totally different lens because we're going to appreciate the things that we weren't able to do. And, I, and that's what I try to tell everybody who, I mean, I, I like you said, January 2nd, I broke my hand January 3rd. And I, had yeah. surge, I think I had surgery like January 21st or something like that. It's, um, a, it's a rough way to go into the new year. I, I really just appreciate that we got this time to talk. And when you reached out to me, I was like, I, I've, I, wanted, I want this to come out right at the time where this is coming, like you know, the right time for this to come out. And so I um we're going to be pushing this before this, for this episode airs and we're going to have the ad that me and you talked about. We, I put it on the uh, couple episodes saying um, I'm rooting for you and we'll be supporting. Don't stand in line. And hopefully we get you back on. And when we talk about series two of don't stand in line. Awesome, man. Thanks so much for having me. Nah, man. Thank you. And uh, I know it's late, so I appreciate you making it work. And uh, yeah, one more time. Codex projects, codec projects, C O D E C. Uh, Yes, codec, C-O-D-E-C, projects.com. And Instagram, Facebook, same deal. Hey, man, uh, best of luck for you on uh, the day this airs. And thank you for your time. I know it's late and you got to go to work. Just um, 
Thank you. And again, once again, thank you for everything you did with 10 Yard Fight. And obviously, it's always hard for me when I'm asking bands to come back and play shows. And I think that someone thought I had like a reunion fetish. <laughs> but it's like, if it, obviously the easiest task is, okay, let's just book the bands that are, you know, active and rolling. And if there's a reunion happening, it's cool. But right. I felt like I feel under, I felt, and I still feel under pressure that someone thinks I've had like a hat, hat hand in a magician's hat and I'm always going to pull something out. <laughs> so like whenever, like I have the opportunity to pull out something like a 10 yard fight, I am always indebted for the bands. Cause the bands have always said the same stuff. And it's like every year in year out, I don't know. I don't, there's always more. I don't knows. Yeah. Very few bands are like, fuck yeah, we're going to kill this. Everyone right, is right, like, right. so well, I, you never I, know, man. Like, I know it's just, so I just wanted to tell you that it was exciting and I appreciate you for doing it then. And obviously for what we talked about on this podcast and um, good luck. All right, brother. Dude. Thanks man. So much. I know that was a longer one. And for me doing this podcast is about talking to the kind of people like wrench who incidentally talked to Chris and Sonny, who were the first two guests I had on my podcast. Someone that believes in hardcore and sees the value in the entrepreneurship and everything that can be learned from the DIY ethics and skills in hardcore and transferred into the real world needs to be celebrated. And it's amazing that he's done it through Don't Stand In Line docuseries. And he's actually going to start his own podcast. And I can't wait to check it out. And I hope that more people can find things that can resonate within people in hardcore who take skills and stay within the scene and make an entire lifestyle out of it. Or just, you know, they do it on the side. Like Wrench has a real job, but his passion is shooting films and documenting and showing the world these amazing people. And that's very much like what I do with this podcast where I pour concrete all day. But in my head, I'm listening to the drafts of the upcoming episodes where I'm thinking about podcast guests. Hardcore is an amazing thing, and the spirit is in the people that are driving it and constantly using their creativity. And a lot of these people who are pushing forward are insanely obsessive, and I think you need that to pursue the kind of things that these guys have achieved. Um, Once again, big shout-out to Sean Youngblood for having us debut Struck Nerves, amazing track, Common Ground. Their LP, Rattle the Cage, will come out December 4th on Youngblood Records. It's going to be available on vinyl and digital, and I hope you guys check that out. As I said previously on last week's episode, just for those who hadn't checked in, the next two episodes are going to come out staggered a little differently. They're not going to come out on Fridays. With Thanksgiving, we're going to put an episode out. It's going to be Wednesday, November 25th. It's going to feature Ernie Talbert who is a Delaware hardcore kid who grew up around the Philadelphia hardcore scene. He went from writing on the walls, moshing on the floors, to being a fucking amazing person within marketing, first a champion, and later now at Under Armour. His story is awesome. I don't want to get too far into it because he tells it well. It's a shorter episode because of his insane job and time constraints. So we're releasing that one the night before Thanksgiving, so you can check that out. And then this Monday upcoming, after that, will be November 30th, and we're going to have my boy James Vitalo, formerly a backtrack, who is now a manager of bands like Terror and Turnstile. His story is awesome, 
And then we'll be returning to Fridays with December 4th and Tim Bohr. Especially with the holiday and some two shorter episodes. Trying to see if we can't get one in every five days. And then we'll go back to the Fridays. For new listeners, God forbid you're still listening to this. You can subscribe and check us out. Comments on the iTunes is absolutely a way that people will see us. And I I don't really push for it. I know a lot of uh, people do that thing. But for me, it's not the biggest thing that I do. I don't go, hey, please, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we had a five-star rating from a friend. And I just want to read it to you because this is kind of stuff that then makes us pop up a little bit in their uh, rankings. Joe is the wise man of hardcore music. And this is Hardcore Fest is the mecca for any fan of hardcore music. Joe's knowledge of hardcore music is outstanding. The history, the stories that contributed to the history, it's all there. You instantly find yourself being sucked into these conversations. He has a unique ability to make the listener feel as if they are right in the middle of the story. Bravo. Now, I don't know all about that. I appreciate my friend writing that and saying that. It means the world to me. But it's comments like that that help us get checked out on iTunes. And uh, not that I'm trying to quit my day job, but I'd like this to get out to more people. We're trying to work on some of the things to get the podcast out a little bit further. And I just appreciate the support. You can find us through the This Is Hardcore Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Instagram and Twitter is easier for me to shout out. But, I mean, Facebook is This Is Hardcore. Um, Twitter is T-I-H-E-F-E-S-T. This is Hardcore Fest, but shorter. And this is Hardcore Fest on Instagram. And I'm the Joe Hardcore on Instagram and Twitter. If you reach out to me, I will absolutely write back to you. I love hearing how people are reacting to these conversations and enjoying them and the biggest thing also you can do is share you see us post it help us get the word out because this isn't about capping up this is hardcore or telling my story this is about echoing and celebrating hardcore through the people that are kicking ass and driving it forward like my friend wrench and like my friend sean youngblood so supporting our podcast is supporting hardcore thank you so much can't wait to hear what you think about ernie's story because it's fucking absolutely amazing take care